Hello, everybody, and welcome to All In. I am the redheaded stepchild of the Order of No Quarter, Eric Knight. And I am Zenogar Slayer Seth. Man, Eric, looking over our news roundup and seeing all the games announced during the Indie World presentation has got me feeling a bit overwhelmed. There's just not enough time to play all of these games. Yeah, I hear you, buddy. That's why I've developed a new method to get the most out of my day. I was inspired by our indie showcase this week, the Zelda-like adventure that you play in 60-second time loops, Minute. Well, you're definitely going to have to let me know what you're doing, because, man, I can use all the extra time I can get. But with so much talk about indie games happening this week, it is also the perfect opportunity to reveal our dream indie Nintendo collaborations in this week's top five. And don't forget, we've also got a monster of a review to tackle because this week on the show, we are finally having our in-depth review discussion of Monster Hunter Rise. Man, I have spent so much time with that game at this point, and I just want to play even more. And then we got new Pokemon Snap coming out in just a couple weeks. There really just aren't enough hours in the day. Oh, you hear that? Uh, oh, we're about to start a new loop, man. You ready? Uh, what? Hello, everybody, and welcome to All In. I am the redheaded stepchild of the Order of No Quarter, Eric Knight. That's that's really weird. We, we'd better get this ironed out and start the show. It's time to go All In. Right, man, did, did, did we get the time loop distortion thing figured out? Yeah, well, let me turn off the Minute Machine while we're doing the show real quick. Actually, now that we mentioned it, Minute Machine would also be a really good name for that studio. Also? Like, what do you mean? Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, little time travel shenanigans. It's kind of a byproduct of the Minute Machine that I haven't quite ironed out yet. But uh, you'll see what I'm talking about in about an hour. Okay. All right, I, I guess this is something that we're dealing with now. But uh, anyway, let's start the show, man. We need to welcome new and returning listeners to All In, a Nintendo podcast, the weekly Nintendo variety show where each and every Saturday, no shells left unturned and no point is left unearned. We are so happy to be with you guys today. Uh, time travel shenaniganry aside, we've got a great show lined up for you. Again, um, we've got... All kinds of great indie stuff to talk about. We've got Minute in the Indie Showcase. We've got a great, fun top five at the top of the show. We are going in-depth with Monster Hunter Rise, finally. But before we do all of that, sir, what's been going on this week? Well, I, I have been binging quite a bit of Stargate SG-1. I know I mentioned it a couple weeks ago on the show. I've been mm. continuing to watch that. That's actually where I got most of the science for the Minute Machine. So, okay. I mean, it seems legit. To me, it seems like a, a scientifically accurate show. So I've thought that that would be a good place to, to take inspiration from <laughs> for my own pseudo time machine. I mean, that seems like science, right? But in addition to that, obviously still watching Falcon of the Winter Soldier. The new episode came out yesterday, gearing up for the finale next week. Uh, I don't want to say really anything about Falcon of the Winter Soldier aside from watch it. I did go back and play through a couple more 
rounds in Pac-Man 99, I am still trying to let the game hook me. Mm. It's it's still good, but it's it's not going to be an obsession for me. It's not going to be one of those things where I absolutely need to play a couple rounds of Pac-Man 99 before I go to sleep every night. Still very much feel sure. that way about Retromania. I'm still constantly playing matches on Retromania. And speaking of wrestling, a friend of mine mentioned this Wrestling Empire game that apparently came out on the Nintendo Switch without me even realizing it. So, and before I really said anything, he was so excited to have me try the game that he just straight up gifted me a copy. He was like, no, here, have it, play it. So I haven't, oh, wow. I haven't had the chance to try that yet. I'll probably jump into that after we finish recording this episode, but... I, I can't give you really any thoughts on it, but apparently there is another arcade-style wrestling game on the Nintendo Switch that I wasn't really even aware of. So I will be interested to check that out. Obviously, it has a very high bar to clear when it comes to arcade wrestling games right now on the Nintendo Switch because of my love affair with Retromania, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, and just aside from that, I did actually... I've, I had to put this on hold for a while just because we were doing so much other stuff, but I have turned back on Yoshi's Crafted World because I do still oh. want to 100% that game. We went through and we 100%ed Super Mario 3D World and Bowser's Fury, and after 100%ing that, it did remind me that there is another Nintendo game that I still kind of need to, to do a few things on to 100%. So I have gone back into that, and I have finished off a couple more levels on that. I, it's a really good game, but it's been said many times before, the process of 100%ing Yoshi's Crafted World is quite monotonous. But it is. it is still something that I feel like I need to do, so I'll probably be be doing that pretty... I'll probably be doing a substantial amount on that in the coming week as well. But what have you been up to, sir? It's been a lot of uh, business as usual. I mean, a really busy week for me, and I haven't had a ton of gaming time. But the gaming time that I have had has gone pretty exclusively to Monster Hunter. And again, um, I'll say it again. We've got a huge review for that coming up at the top of the show. And we are going to break down all of our thoughts on Monster Hunter Rise. So I've just I've spent a ton of time with that. Um, You know, spoilers is a good game. (laughs) Um, but uh speaking i'm not normally the one to talk about i'm not a huge tv watcher and since you know the movie theaters have been essentially non-existent for the past year i have been watching a ton of movies lately but i did get a chance to watch godzilla versus kong on hbo max this past week nice i still really want to see that it's good um i i had fun with it i you know it's funny because like (laughs) I don't want to dunk on it too much because I, I see a lot of people who are talking about like just the the human element of these movies a little too much. And to be honest, I've always been of the opinion of like, if you're watching these movies for the human characters, you're kind of doing it wrong. Um, it's It's all about Godzilla and King Kong beating each other up. And there is a lot of that in this movie. And that stuff is really, really good. The fights in this movie are amazing. And... I don't want to spoil anything, of course, but but things don't go exactly the way you think they're going to go when it comes to the actual like kaiju battles. The script, of course, is horrible and stupid, but <laughs> the actual fighting is really top notch. And, and that's what I come to these movies for. 
all I want is just to see a giant lizard and a giant, you know, gorilla beating each other up in a neon city. And I got that with this movie. So Seth happy, <laughs> you know, well, good. I'm good with that. Good. I'm good with that for a long time. So I, I wasn't let down like a lot of people were. And then also uh, we got in the mail this week, our copy of ask you Wada, which was nice. Yes. Uh, the book we've been looking forward to for a long time. And I haven't had a chance to sit down and read through it in its entirety. We will definitely report back and talk about the book a little bit more in depth when we get the chance to read through it. But I have kind of leafed through it and, and it's a really nice kind of little package. It's it's a pretty concise little 150 page or, or so motivational book. And it's just really great to see Iwata's words immortalized in this form, you know, and, and to to let people continue to be inspired by this man that we all love so much. So really happy to have that on my bookshelf. Yeah, I'm glad you were able to get that. I actually had, I would very much love to have been able to say I got my book this past week, but I had a little bit of an issue with that, unfortunately. It's been yeah. so long since we pre-ordered these books. We pre-ordered them the day they went, uh, or the day they became available on Amazon. And it's been about a year since that happened. And I forgot that they don't actually charge you until they ship the book. Right. And I've changed cards. I've changed debit cards in the past year. So right. it's not uncommon for things to take an extra day or so to get to me where I live. So when everybody else was getting their book and I didn't get my book for a day, I was like, eh, you know, probably get it today, tomorrow, maybe the next day. But come Thursday, I was like, it, I, yeah, I should probably check on that because I haven't even got a shipping notification from Amazon yet. So I jump onto Amazon right. and it says... Uh, we require payment detail update. I'm like, oh man. So that's so annoying. Hopefully I'll have my book next week. Yeah. Again, once we've had a chance to really kind of both read through it and enjoy it, we will uh, report back and and talk about the book a little bit more in depth. Um, I, it was funny because you're right. We pre-ordered this thing like over a year ago. So it actually went to my old apartment complex. (laughs) (laughs) So I got a call on my way home from work and uh, and the, my old apartment complex calls me and they're like, hey, um, we have a package for you here. And rather than sending it after like a return to sender kind of situation, do you want to just come pick it up? And I was like, yes, please. So I actually headed up to my old apartment complex to pick up the book. So it just goes to show. I mean, we've had this thing pre-ordered for over a year now. So it is really nice to to finally have it in our hands. So. Stay tuned for that. But, uh, man, we have got, you know, between the Indie World Showcase and some of these other news items is actually a fairly stacked news week. So what do you say we get into it? Yes, let's get into the stack. Hey, listen. So as it turns out, we do have a fresh batch of NPD sales data uh, that we're going to get into just really, really quickly. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but it is always nice to uh, to kind of get into that and to see what is going on in the world of Nintendo sales. And as has been the trend for over a year now, March 2021 continues to be a record-setting month for video game sales. Uh, as it turns out, consumer spending across video game hardware in the month of March um, and in terms of hardware content and accessories reached a March record $5.6 billion, which is an 18% increase when compared to last year. Uh, I mentioned this last time we talked about MPD, but we're we're probably going to start to see the pandemic kind of really started in earnest 
last March. So I, I do think we're still doing kind of like record breaking months for now. I do think it's going to slow down pretty considerably when we start talking about April and beyond, but we'll, we'll definitely see how that shakes out in terms of software though. Hey, Eric, can you, can you take a, a stab in the dark on what the best selling switch game of March was? Do you have a guess? Maybe, <laughs> you know what? It's really hard to tell. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's not like that. They made a huge event out of removing a specific game from the entire gaming landscape. So, it's not like that happened. It's not like that happened. It's also not like they they still have the roaring sales of 3D World. It's not like they have the juggernaut of Animal Crossing or Mario Kart. But there's a certain uh, you know third party game that maybe moved a ton of copies there at the end of March. That does surprise me that that actually outsold Mario 3D All Stars in March. Yeah, 3D All Stars actually. We'll we'll get into it, but it's it's not as high up as I thought it would be. I kind of got the impression that maybe people. Uh, kind of bought it when it first came out and we were just kind of seeing stragglers there at the end. But yeah, taking the number one spot was indeed Monster Hunter Rise. Um, it actually, you know, again, the best-selling game um, on Switch for the month, but it also debuted as March's second best-selling software across all platforms. So across anything, PlayStation, Xbox, Nintendo, Monster Hunter Rise, the second best-selling game of the month. And uh, it's already the second highest grossing entry in the Monster Hunter franchise, second only to Monster Hunter World. So give it a few months. Exactly. Yeah. Huge debut for that game. Uh, Taking the number two spot, Super Mario 3D World plus Bowser's Fury, continuing to be a massive game for Nintendo. I'm really excited when we get our quarterly reports to see where that game has landed in terms of total unit sales. Number three, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, which just surpassed yet another milestone achievement. That game is now the best-selling racing game in U.S. history. Wow. Wow. (laughs) There's been some really good racing games over the years, too. That tops legendary franchises like Forza and Gran Turismo. A port of Mario Kart 8, a Wii U kart racer, is the best-selling game in the racing genre in U.S. history. What did it dethrone? I imagine it's Gran Turismo. It's got to be. I, I didn't check. I, I, it's got to be one of the Gran Turismo games because those games were just so hot, especially like we're just talking about in those early PS2 days. Like Gran Turismo 3 was like the best selling racing game for a long, long time. It's got to be one of those. Yeah. When I was running Game Exchange, we probably had an entire row just of Gran Turismo 4 on the PS2. They probably made. Yeah. 60 million copies of that game back on the PlayStation 2. It was everywhere. Yeah, no, but so, I mean, but Mario Kart 8's the king now. Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is, it's crazy how well that game is done. Um, But as per usual, not far behind it, at number four is Animal Crossing New Horizons. And number five, actually, is where 3D All-Stars slots in. So we didn't see as much movement as I thought we were going to see. I I thought we were probably going to see that shoot up a little bit higher because of kind of like last minute purchases, but it might just imply that the people that were going to kind of, you know, feverishly buy this game probably bought it within this time period already. They probably weren't going to be last minute buying it, you know, in the month of March. So I hope everybody that was interested in getting the game was able to get a copy. I do too. But yeah, that really surprises me because obviously, yes, there's that, 
massive tsunami of people who bought it as soon as they were able to once it came out last year. But there's always still so many. I mean, regardless of what context it's in, imagine doing your taxes. How many people are still doing their taxes in the in the days before the taxes are due each year, despite the fact that you have sure. several months? Uh, H&R Block and, and services like that are still crammed full of people trying to do their taxes the day of. So there, there's always people like that, no matter what context you're talking about. So it really surprises me that that 3D All-Stars didn't push like 7 million copies in March as this last ditch effort to try to get a new copy, especially considering how insane people are already getting on eBay with their sealed copies. Yeah, I don't know. I, I It was a weird one for me too. I was a little surprised to see that, but I mean, we'll see. It's it's possible that, because there is kind of a cutoff date with some of this stuff, so... And it's possible that we're going to see a little bit more movement as retailers sell through the remaining physical stock they do have. But it has, of course, been delisted digitally. And sadly, we no longer have Mario on the eShop page, and I already miss him. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but to uh, kind of rattle off these last five here to, to round out the top ten, uh, number six, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. Yep. Number seven, Pokemon Sword and Shield. It is worth noting that starting with this month's report, the NPD has decided to start treating the game as a singular entity as it relates to reporting sales numbers. They're no longer breaking it up between the two. It's just Pokemon Sword and Shield. That makes sense. Um, yeah, which makes perfect sense. Number eight, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Number nine, Super Mario Party. And number 10, Luigi's Mansion 3. So that is what we are looking like for the top 10 best-selling Switch games of the month of March 2021. You see, Nintendo? Super Mario Party is still performing well. Support it. Dude, that game has sold a ton of copies. I I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I think it's sold some 12 or 13 million copies. Like, it's sold extraordinarily well. That game is... I know we've mentioned this so many times before on the show, but that game is begging for more content. Nintendo. We're begging here. Please, yeah. sir, may I have some more? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Would have been so nice to see DLC. But speaking of more Nintendo content, what happened this week, Eric? A beautiful, beautiful thing happened this week. It was so beautiful. Beautiful, in fact, that I decided to ask out the Indie World Showcase on a date. It still hasn't gotten back to me yet. But <laughs> but I, I was. it was kind of love at first sight when it came to this week's indie world showcase nintendo has made a habit of really really good indie world showcases we had another fantastic one we had a couple fantastic ones late last year one of them was so good we even did one of our top fives based around the best games from that show and honestly we could have done another one from this show we really could have there's so many really cool games shown off in this indie world showcase let's start talking about them yeah, so they opened up the presentation with a really interesting looking game called Road 96. Yes. Um, on the docket for later this year. And it looks like this game is going to have like, it looks like it's a first person kind of adventure game that looks like it's going to have thousands of permutations of the way the story can go. We'll see. Obviously, when you're marketing a game, when you're showing it off, you try to make it as, you try to make the game look as good as possible. But right. Based on everything they've shown, it looks like there is going to be a a pretty impressive amount of variety in terms of the way you can tackle the game from start to finish. I don't know if it's going to be Mass Effect levels of permutations, but 
they did show off quite a few individual differences. And that was the big part. That was the big sticking point of the trailer for Road 96 was basically showing how much freedom you had to do whatever you wanted to do and to take the game in whatever direction you wanted to take it. So uh, experiences like that are always really, really cool, really, really interesting. And I hope that the game itself, the finished product, is able to really deliver on those promises. Me too. It's it's a really unique idea. Uh, the kind of next, we're not going to cover every single solitary thing. We're just going to kind of go through the the hits here. But another game that we really need to stop and talk about is Ariel underscore Knights Never Yield, which was shown off during this presentation, coming out on May nineteenth, and actually Shadow dropped a demo, which we both played. Yes, and um. Let's talk about that demo for a sec. What, what did you think? Yeah, we didn't talk about it in the what we've been up to recently because obviously it was a big part of this week's Indie World Showcase. It was one of four titles. They didn't drop the full game, but it was one of four titles that had shadow dropped content. So we definitely jumped all over that. But playing through the game, the game itself is a runner. And that's what it is. There's really no variety beyond that in terms of the gameplay the visuals look halfway decent the soundtrack itself is really good but for the gameplay you the the gameplay is so limited let me say this that you can actually play this game one-handed because right the d-pad and the face buttons both perform the same functions because it's a runner because you're constantly moving there is no really movement option You just have a low dodge, a medium dodge, a high dodge, and then a sprint, which are mapped to both the D-pad and the face buttons as uh, down slash B, left slash Y, up slash X, and right slash A, respectively, for the low, medium, high dodge, and then the sprint. And that's really all you do. And the obstacles that you run up on are color-coordinated, So you don't even really have to look at what you're doing. You just have to recognize the color outline of what's coming up. And you just basically hit the appropriate button. It's it's effectively like a Simon Says. Right. Yeah, it's... I I feel bad because I like the guy a lot. Ariel Knight seems like a really cool guy. But like, and, and I like that it's, you know, it's based in Detroit. It's this kind of young scrappy thing where he's collaborating with his friends who are hip hop artists, making the soundtrack for this game. I know our friend Tim from the Nintendo Dads is really into it as a Detroit native. So I, I feel bad, but I just found this game gameplay wise. And I knew when I texted you this after we saw the reveal trailer, I was like, well, this game is only going to be as strong as its controls. And I, I really feel like the gameplay is just boring like it's just not like again i hate to be mean about it but it just like yeah it really is just you're kind of just running and and kind of pressing a button in time with these slow-mo obstacles that are coming at you and yeah the visuals are cool and the soundtrack's great but it it really didn't do anything for me in terms of the gameplay like it really didn't i I, playing the demo i was just kind of like I don't know if I would be interested in playing a full-length version of this. Well, at the difficulty the demo has, you are constantly slowing down. You run for a couple seconds, and then you immediately go back into slow mode so that you have an opportunity to dodge the obstacle. There is a difficulty that there is no slow-mo 
at all. Right. And I do think that that absolutely should have been an option because I would be very interested to see how much more interesting this game is when there is no slow-mo because slow-mo can be really, really cool and really, really interesting when used sparingly. When used sparingly, it can be it can be used to great effect. However, in the demo for Aerial Knights, never yield, you're basically constantly in slow-mo. And it just serves to really slow the game down, unfortunately. So just specifically for the demo, I would very highly recommend patching in the hard mode for that. But even though that may be, but even that would be, I'd be hard pressed to say that that would save the game because I do have a few other issues with the game. Just very briefly, just the couple levels that you play through. I thought the levels themselves were a little bit too long. I felt that yeah, sections of the demo, I felt like I replayed a section of the demo that I beat five specific times. There was way too much of a sense of deja vu, way too many reuse of assets in a lot of these levels, just in the demo levels there was an overabundance of reused assets, unfortunately. And there are way too many foreground elements, way too many foreground elements. Mm. There's a ton of, there's a ton of times just in the demo where you basically have no choice, but to go off of the color silhouette of whatever you're coming off of, because it's kind of hard to see what else is going on. But the biggest thing about this game, considering its soundtrack I really, really think this game should have considered being a rhythm platformer. Yeah, I agree. It, it would have been really nice. The, the soundtrack is so good and bombastic, and it would have been really nice to like time the stuff to the beat. Exactly. I, I think that would make it a lot more interesting. Yeah, I agree. If Instead of just going, run a few seconds, hit a button, or run a few seconds, go into slow-mo, hit a button, run a few seconds, go into slow-mo, hit a button for six, seven minutes on end. If you were actually going with the timing of the music and letting the music itself, letting that really good soundtrack dictate the game for you, I think that alone would make the game far more interesting, even with its limited gameplay. Yeah, I mean, you look at something like Sayonara Wild Hearts, which is a game that is not, you know, for for many sections of that game, it's not as if you're doing anything super taxing in terms of the gameplay, but because it is layered and in time to a really good soundtrack and because they have made that a rhythm based game, it really does elevate the entire experience. I, yeah, I, it would have been nice. Again, I don't want to be too mean about it. I'm happy that there are people who are really digging this game, but I, I did come away from the demo pretty unimpressed, unfortunately. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Uh, I, I don't imagine that they're going to change the game up majorly before its release next month. But if they do continue to work on this game post-launch, I'd, I'd be very interested to see what they're able to do with the game and how they're able to improve the experience. And I'd be willing to come back to it in a few months or a year from now. Definitely, definitely. Well, another uh, weird game that was shadow dropped uh, during the presentation, this game called The Longing, which is this... like really interesting game based on an old like folk legend about a God who told his servant to like wake him up after 400 days. And so this game is actually played in 400 days in real time. Quote unquote. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. It's a really bizarre looking game. I, I guess to hear people describe it, it's kind of like a combination of a quote unquote idle game and like something like an animal crossing where it's the kind of light game experience that you turn on play for 30 minutes, an hour every day. And, and you just apparently are meant to do that for 400 days in real time. So it's a weird idea, man. I can't imagine there is no way in the game to progress the time outside of the real time uh, clock counting down because 400 days, 400 days of in real time <laughs> yeah. gameplay. That's over a year. Uh-huh. Like that's 40, what, 4,800 hours of gameplay. You're asking somebody, and I, I think the game runs like just on a real world clock. So assumedly you can just speed up your switches clock, like your internal system clock to, to make that work. But I don't know. It's, it's a really weird idea. I, I wasn't, that's another one. And I I was looking at the trailer too. And the main character looks like it just moves at like a snail's pace. And I I don't know that that was another one that I, I was not super impressed by. It's, it's out now it's a shadow drop and the creator is clearly really passionate about it. And I think the art of the game is actually really interesting looking, but it's not, maybe if they do a demo or something like that, I would try it out, but it was not, it was not intriguing enough for me to make like a blind purchase. It is a really interesting concept, but yeah, I would, I would definitely have to see more on this game before we're able to give you any real cohesive thoughts on it. But again, it is certainly unique enough. It is unique enough to mention. So if the weird stuff that we've already mentioned is, has intrigued you, you know, check out the trailer for yourself. But I think a, a big takeaway from this presentation was that we finally got confirmation via a new trailer that the game that we are so hyped for, TMNT Shredder's Revenge by Tribute Games, is now finally confirmed for a Switch release later this year. Huzzah! Huzzah! Yes, after the game got uh, announced for essentially every other platform a little while ago, we specifically tweeted at them to, to try to see if we could get a Switch console confirmation and they were of course being very coy about that but we we all kind of expected it was going to happen especially concerning the people that are behind it the same people behind streets of rage 4 this had to come to the switch but it was still very very cool and very very hype to get that announcement that a game that may just wind up uh giving scott pilgrim a run for its money in in terms of the best beat-em-up of all time giving Streets of Rage 4, a run for its money in terms of one of the best beat-em-ups of all time. I, this is going to be so, so good. I, I We haven't played it. There's not a demo out. But, guys, this is going to be a, this is going to be a must-play game. I can guarantee that without playing a second of it. Yeah, just, just to look at it, you can tell it's going to be a, a fun time. I, I can't wait. We've talked about the game at length when it first got announced, so, so it was cool to see this new trailer. was cool to see the game finally confirmed for Switch, even though it was you know almost certainly coming to the console from the outset. But, I mean, again, this is just a nice touchstone and, uh, and a hype moment in the presentation. But speaking of a, a game that kind of has been long awaited, uh, this game, Chris Tales, that yes. you actually played the demo for a while ago on the show got a release date of July 20th. I know this has been a long-awaited title for a lot of people. 
Yeah, the demo for Chris Tales popped up on the eShop a little while ago, and I thought it looked really interesting. It reminded me a little bit of Bug Fables. So mm -hmm. I was really interested to check it out. And sure enough, the game itself is really, really cool. It does very much remind me of Bug Fables in terms of the turn-based RPG set within a 3D world of 2D assets, which I know is really specific. But the light kind of green and blue pastel uh, color scheme of the world and the, the characters, it just all looks really, really cool. Even before you get into the game's core gimmick, which is pretty early on in the game, the main character, Chris Bell, gets the ability to both look into the past and look into the future of the current environment she's in. And the way that's represented is from the top middle of the screen, it's almost like cut down the middle diagonally. So in the middle, you have this pyramid of essentially the present. And then off to the left of the screen, you see that same environment in the past. And to the right of the screen, you see this exact same environment in the future. And that that's going to have a lot to do with solving overworld puzzles and affecting the overworld. But in battle, a lot of the really, really interesting hooks about the game are going to come into play when it comes to the battle. Because, And this is something that I mentioned when I played through the demo a while back. Imagine you're fighting an enemy and you can use your powers of past and present to make an enemy younger which may debuff them, which may make them weaker defensively. So you can take an enemy and you can make them, you can send them into the past and make them younger versions of themselves, but still fight them as if they were in the present. Conversely, you could also make an enemy older. One of the really cool things they showed off in the demo in that regard was you have elemental powers. The one that you have in the demo is a water-based power. And you fight an enemy that has a very strong iron shield that you really can't get past with your normal attacks. So the the dev intended solution that they get you through in the tutorial, you have to use your water element power on this shield. And then it makes the shield wet. And then you send that enemy into the future where that shield and their armor is now rusted and effectively useless. So really cool. It is a really, really cool concept. I can imagine so many different uses for that mechanic and so many different applications. I do really, and this is a small nitpick when it comes to the overall experience of the game, but the game really could use some HD rumble. That was one thing that really stuck out to me was the fact that there was no HD rumble. And in a world where the vast majority of even indie titles are making pretty liberal use of that function. It does stand out when a an indie title that's getting a little bit of mar uh, marquee traction isn't doing something like that. But, I mean, just based on the gameplay, based on the world and the visuals, that's still a game that I'm going to be very excited to try here in a couple months. The demo, I believe, is still up on the eShop, so do take a look at that. If you're a fan of RPGs and you don't mind a flowery aesthetic, then Chris Tales should definitely be on your two playlist, in my opinion. Yeah, it looks really interesting. Again, coming out July 20th, and yes, that demo is indeed still available on the eShop to check out for yourself. Um, the next bit here that we have is um, the, the news that apparently Konami is considered an independent developer. Yeah. 
because they announced this game, Getsu Fumiden Undying Moon, which at first blush just kind of looked like a really cool kind of like almost like a like a 2D combat brawler, like a, almost a ghost and goblins looking kind of thing. Reminded me a little bit of Miramasa. Y- yes, it looks a little bit like Miramasa, the Demon Blade a little bit. Um, and apparently it's a sequel to this like old Famicom game that Konami made. And it's coming next year, and it looks cool, but I missed the memo where Konami was an indie dev. Yeah, that was the weird thing. I didn't notice it while the Indie World Showcase was going on. I was, you know, just trying to wrap my head around everything that was being announced because it was basically rapid fire at that time. But sure enough, after the Indie World Showcase was over, Konami tweeted out, I was like, hey, check out this game of ours that was shown off in the Indie World Showcase. (laughs) I just said to myself, I said, that's interesting. (laughs) <laughs> right but so i didn't weird. even know about this this it being a sequel that you mentioned i you were the one that i found out that about from so yeah just kind of a weird game i mean if you look at the game it's a weird game it's kind of disturbing visually it's got this not quite on the level of body horror going on it seems just cartoonish right. enough to really skate above something like a survival horror genre but yeah it it looks it looks really weird and it's certainly got a really weird background it's a really weird game guys yeah it just i i got nothing man it's it's coming next year it was just such a bizarre inclusion for the showcase i mean it, it looks interesting i'll be interested but uh i guess we'll have to see when it comes out next year um, but another game that kind of really caught my eye was this Aztec Forgotten Gods. That's Aztec, like A-Z-T-E-C-H, like technology. And it's from this Mexican independent developer called Lienzo that previously made a game called Mulaka, which I didn't play, but looks really interesting. It is on the Switch, so maybe I'll have to go back and check that out. But this game Aztec is really interesting looking. It looks like it's got this kind of kind of open world to it. It's like this combination of old like Aztec mythology with kind of modern technology, almost like a like a cyberpunk bent to it. It looks really cool. Yeah, if you remember the game Too Human that tried to blend Norse sensibilities with very futuristic technology, that's kind of what we're talking about, but instead of Norse mythology. We're talking Aztec and Central American yeah. mythology. It reminds me a little bit of Bionic Commando, to be honest. It's like if an indie developer mm. did Bionic Commando. That's at least basically the impression I got from it. We definitely have to get our hands on it, but it does look really interesting. And it's really cool to see independent developers, you know, even independent developers that don't have the the talent and name recognition behind it as something like a Platonic Games, who's comprised of so many industry veterans with decades of experience under their belt. It's really cool to see these smaller, less well-known indie, uh, independent developers getting into these big, seemingly open world 3D adventure games. So it, the 2D pixelated platformer has been a very popular genre for independent developers for a long time, but we are starting to see a fairly extreme branching out of genres with a lot of these independent developers as games themselves, as there's more tools available to make more higher end quote unquote titles. And 
I, I think this is going to be, I, I hope this winds up being a really, really standout experience from this independent developer because one of the really cool things about this indie showcase was all the different cultures and all the different countries that were involved in the Mm -hmm. indie world showcase. The longing that we talked about a little earlier came from a German developer. And this game as tech forgotten gods is coming from a Mexican developer. And that was very apparent throughout this indie showcase that there were a lot of countries represented in here. So, you know, Indie studios popping up all over the world, more tools popping up all over the world. I'm excited for this game. I am. But I think this game, more so than any game in the Indie Showcase, made me excited about the future in general of independent developers and independent games. That's a great point. Yeah, we saw a lot of uh, different cultures represented, of course. Um, I, I feel like this game could very well, when it launches this fall, could very well be this year's Raji. You know, very well could be. I would really love to uh, to see that. And again, the game looks great. Uh, assuming that it, the footage that we saw was the game running on Switch, it looks like it. I, I was kind of floored by how good the game looks and how well it seems to be running already. So this game is is very much on my radar. And I know a game that you're really excited about Dude. is the House of the Dead remake coming Dude. out later this year. Dude, I am so hyped for this House of the Dead remake. And they just threw a couple shots of this House of the Dead remake into, again, this montage of other games. Yeah, they that buried are coming it a out. little bit. Yeah, that really blew my mind that they did that. Granted, I know, yes, there's a lot of really cool games that were shown off in this Indie World Showcase. But this is House of the Dead. This is one of the seminal arcade titles from the arcade years. This is a classic from Sega, an all-time classic from Sega. It blows my mind that the fact that House of the Dead is getting a remake was just kind of tucked in the middle of a montage toward the end of the Indie World Showcase. But I was so incredibly hyped for this. They have since released a full trailer. And I mean, yes, it very much looks like a House of the Dead remake to the point where it almost could be one of those situations like we were talking about with uh, Wonder Boy and the Dragon's Trap and the Halo Collection where yeah. you could switch between the old and new visuals with a button. We haven't seen something like that, but it looks like a faithful enough remake that they could in, that they could implement that if they really wanted to. The upgraded visuals look really cool, and I personally have a very strong relationship with this game specifically, which is why I am so excited for it. My first job ever was at a game room, was as a game room attendant, specifically at my alma mater. I was fortunate enough that I didn't have to get a job until I got into college, but my first ever job was as a game room attendant at the campus arcade. And one of the games we had was the original House of the Dead. We had a few pinball machines. We had Street Fighter EX3. We had some other titles. But every day while I was in there, I wound up playing house of the dead and it got to the point i wound up playing this game so much that i got good enough at the original house of the dead i could beat the game literally on one credit uh nice i I spent so so much time on the original house of the dead i don't know if i could beat it on one credit right now but i have a very very deep appreciation for house the dead i spent so so much time on that game playing it as part of my first ever job in the on-campus arcade. And I am so excited for this remake. You guys, you have no, I'm so excited for this remake. 
<laughs> I'm looking forward to it too. I uh, I've really played a lot of House of the Dead two on Dreamcast, so I I like this series. It's going to be cool to see it uh, get remade, get a little bit of love, do a little bit of a light gun shooting on the Switch with the gyro controls. I hope so. That'll be cool. But uh, man, that wasn't even it. Again, we're not even touching on everything that happened in the indie showcase, but you know kind of also tail ending there we got a shadow drop of fez the classic indie game that was even part of indie game the movie is now available on the nintendo switch yeah i was not expecting fez to show up it has been a long time since we've seen really anything from fez and of course the developer of fez phil fish very famously kind of quit earth right um, it just had this massive meltdown and essentially just went into hiding. He was working on Fez 2, but then that stopped. So I don't think really anybody was expecting any Fez-related news at all. But sure enough, in this Indie World Showcase, somehow Nintendo was able to secure the rights to release this iconic indie game from yesteryear on their platform. And if you've never played Fez, if you've never had the opportunity to play Fez, this is a must play it is one of the best indie games from the past decade it really is it's it's a it's an absolute classic indie game highly recommend it and i'm so glad that it's on switch now because we'll have an excuse to do an indie showcase on it sometime exactly we can (laughs) we can talk about the game now we can talk about one of the best indie games ever now yes yes i was so excited to see fez and i cannot wait to replay through it on my nintendo switch yeah, and then kind of the last thing I'll, I'll touch on here, because they, they did do a cheeky little fake-out at the end of the Indie World Presents, which I thought was really funny, where they made it seem like they were wrapping up the presentation. And I I, I gotta admit, I was falling for it. I was like, really? They're not gonna do the whole, like, one last thing? And then, of course, they said, no, we do have one more thing to show you. Yeah, Nintendo has kind of gotten in this habit of, oh, looks like we're done for the day. Oh, no, wait, we've got one last little thing to tell you guys about. It's become such a trope that, yeah, I'll admit that they they played it up enough in this Indie World Showcase that I really thought that... It was like, okay, maybe not this time. And then, oh, wait, one more time. It was like, oh, you got me. Oh, you got me. Yeah, they got me. They really had me going. But so what we got at the at the very end was a teaser trailer for a sequel to Oxenfree. Oxenfree 2. And uh, man, I'm really excited. Uh, the first Oxenfree is a really excellent game with a really unique dialogue mechanic that I can't believe more people haven't stolen. And um, it's... It's a sequel to a really good game is low-key really exciting news. I, I feel like not enough people are talking about how exciting a sequel to Oxenfree actually is. See, here's the thing. I know actually next to nothing about Oxenfree. That's one of the things about the indie gaming landscape is when they mentioned Oxenfree, in my mind, I was like, oh, that's right. That's a game that exists. And it, yeah. that was immediately followed by a a deep shame that I had no clue what this apparently marquee announcement was really about. So now I, I very much have this, this feeling in my gut is like, well, apparently I really need to go back and play the first one. Yeah. And and when you do, we should totally do an indie showcase on it because it is a very good game. I, I liked that game a lot. I played it back when it first came out. And uh, again, 
they they just have such a unique dialogue system and they they tell a really good story night school studios is made up of a lot of ex telltale developers and, and they're really cool people i've had the pleasure of talking with them um at pax and they're just a really cool group that have a an impressive pedigree and their writing is on full display in the first oxen free and their latest game after party which i have not played yet i, I need to get around to that but now that they've got a sequel to Oxenfree, I am very, very interested indeed. And I mean, this this may not be like the megaton silk song level announcement that I think a lot of people were looking for. And, and that's probably something we should talk about because it's this was a weird indie showcase because I really came into this expecting like a Braid release date, a Spelunky release date, an Axiom Verge 2 release date. And we saw a lot of really cool stuff, a lot of really hype moments, but we didn't get some of the things that I was almost certain we would. Yeah, there's still a lot of details that we need to learn about some very important indie games that should be coming out soon. Obviously, we already have uh, Hollow Knight 2 Silk Song. We've already got word that Spelunky, Spelunky 2 are coming to the Nintendo Switch. We've got word that some really big indie releases are on their way and very soon. Specifically, Axiom Verge is still confirmed for a spring release window. That was a recent reconfirmation that that's coming out in spring and we still don't have an actual date for it. So coming into this Indie World Showcase, there were a few games that we kind of expected to see. We at least expected to see a couple of them, but we didn't. Like, don't get us wrong. We still absolutely love this Indie World Showcase. There was a ton of amazing titles shown off but it is still really weird that there were some things that really should have been shown off that weren't. Yeah, and especially now that Nintendo is confirmed to be playing a major hand in E3, I, I don't expect to get another one between now and then, you know? So, I don't know. We'll have to see. I mean, maybe these games are just not quite ready to share their release dates, and, and maybe Nintendo approached them for inclusion in this, and they just weren't quite there yet, but some of these major marquee indie games are supposed to be coming really soon. And we still have no idea when that date is. But anyway, I, I, I think we're in agreement though, still that it was a, it's still a very, very cool indie world showcase and, and a welcome addition um, to, to the news week. And I do just want to mention really, really quickly that they kind of talked about this on the tail end of the showcase, but there is a massive, Indie World sale going on on the eShop, and that is going on until the 25th. Yeah, definitely do check out that sale. And as a matter of fact, the game that we're going to be... Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. You already said that, Seth. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, another another time travel. Don't worry about it. You'll find out soon. That's that's fair. Okay. But, you know, speaking of showcases, um, I, I there was a showcase that happened this week that we were expecting big Nintendo-related news out of that we didn't get. Yeah, so the Resident Evil, the second Resident Evil 25th anniversary showcase was this past Thursday. And and <laughs> that's that's about all we can say. Just it happened. There was no Nintendo Switch related news. We were expecting I mean to the point of like we that that's the whole reason we even reported on it happening is because there have been, you know, really solid leaks from, you know, Dust Gollum, who is a very prolific, very reliable Capcom leaker with a basically 100% track record of being correct. 
that Resident Evil Revelations 3 is coming as a Switch exclusive title. And we were all but expecting to see that at, at bare minimum to see that title revealed during the showcase. But it's like they uh, it's like they just didn't even they completely ignored that the Switch is a thing. And it's so weird because the Stadia is being supported for Resident Evil's 25th right. anniversary. The Quest 2 VR system is being supported for Resident Evil's 25th anniversary with a VR remake of Resident Evil 4. Obviously, the PlayStation and the Xbox is being supported with Resident Evil Village coming out next month, and that was a focal point of the showcase. But it, it's like they are intentionally keeping Nintendo out of the party. And this feels like a conversation that we've had several times over the past year with not just the first Resident Evil showcase, but also with the Ubisoft Forward events that that company has held. Square Enix, too. Square Enix, yeah, absolutely. So I, I don't know if this is just a case of because Nintendo is so prolific with these digital direct presentations, if a lot of these developers and a lot of these publishers just say, hey, we're working on stuff for Nintendo, but we're just going to let them talk about it because they're going to anyway in their Nintendo directs. I don't know if that's the case. Yeah. Or I don't know if it's just that. I don't know if there's a sense of trying to leave the Nintendo Switch behind because of its perceived lack of relevance anymore because of the new shiny toys from Microsoft and Sony. It's still really weird to see, again, the Stadia and the Quest 2 being supported for Resident Evil's 25th anniversary, and Nintendo isn't being, especially considering that, granted, yes, Nintendo might not be the first company, might not be the first console you think of when you think of Resident Evil. Of course, the original trilogy very famously came out on the original PlayStation, was a PlayStation 1 exclusive. However, there have still been a ton of Resident Evil games released for Nintendo consoles. And, of course, Resident Evil 4, a game that we did a retrospective on a while back, was very famously a Nintendo exclusive for quite some time. In addition to the Resident Evil Revelation games and Resident Evil remakes and, like, Resident Evil Zero, there's been a ton of Resident Evil love on Nintendo consoles over the years. And given that the series is celebrating its 25th anniversary, that, in my mind, makes it even more strange that we're not seeing anything Nintendo related, you know, take Squaresoft out of the, or take Square Enix out of the mix, take Ubisoft out of the mix. We're talking about a celebration of 25 years of Resident Evil that looks at this point, like it may be completely skipping a console. I, I think you actually hit the nail on the head when you said that they're going to let Nintendo talk about it because Nintendo kind of does stand apart from all of these other publishers where, yeah, they, they have the platform to be completely honest with you. Resident evil revelations three probably has a better shot, a much better shot of getting more eyes on it during a like partner showcase than it would during this resident evil showcase. There were people watching this resident evil showcase. Sure. But it does not command the viewership that a Nintendo direct does. So, that's what I have to imagine is happening here. It's either that or the most prolific Capcom leaker is just flat out wrong and the game doesn't exist. I, or, you know, worse yet, they're just choosing to skip over Nintendo entirely this year for the anniversary. I've got to imagine that they're just waiting for Nintendo to talk about it during a partner showcase. That's, that's gotta be what it is. Um, and I mean, look, 
if and when it happens, we will certainly report on it one way or another. But this was really bizarre. We did tune into this fully expecting some kind of Switch announcement. Um, so it, it kind of is what it is. There's not a whole lot more to say about it, but here's hoping that the uh, 25th anniversary doesn't pass the Nintendo Switch by. But if anybody from Capcom is listening to this, just quick little, quick little point of criticism, quick little uh, suggestion for you guys. I would not recommend having an English dub over Japanese developers as well as English oh. subtitles because <laughs> the translation for your dub and for your subtitles was vastly different. There was a big amount of cognitive dissonance when the stuff I was hearing was not really remotely lining up with the stuff that was being subtitled at the bottom of the screen. It was incredibly hard to follow some of what was going on because what was being said and what was being shown were only connected in the loosest of terms. So either do an English dub or do subtitles. Guys, don't do both anymore. <laughs> right. That's fair. Well, maybe this next Ubisoft forward will have some Nintendo related news because they did unveil their kind of E3 plans officially considering Ubisoft forward a part of E3 2021. The next event is happening June 12th at noon Pacific. And uh, you never know. Maybe maybe we'll get our uh, Mario Plus Rabbids 2. I specifically predicted Mario Plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle 2 for E3 2021, and I very much hope that I'm right. And we will be certainly watching Ubisoft's presentation, just like we're going to be watching the vast majority of presentations at E3. But if Ubisoft specifically doesn't mention Nintendo during their presentation, I've kind of been burned enough by the forwards that if they don't mention Nintendo, we're not going to mention them. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Because it's, again, at a certain point, it, we're we're just beating a dead horse. At a certain point, it's like, cool, uh, Resident Evil didn't talk about Nintendo. Square didn't talk about Nintendo. Ubisoft, yet again, didn't talk about Nintendo. So we'll see what happens. I, I've got my fingers crossed. But, um, you know, th- there was a little bit of a, of a Twitter upset <laughs> this past week when Nintendo revealed a new Blurple <laughs> color variant. For the uh, Nintendo Switch Lite, is it blue? Is it purple? Um, which is going to be releasing alongside Metopia of all things. They actually specifically called out on Twitter that they were releasing this alongside Metopia. You know that marquee release on May twenty first. So this was just kind of a bizarre thing that swept that kind of like set the Twitterverse ablaze. Nintendo. Quit trying to make Metopia a thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not a thing. But yeah, I you'd think that. A new color, not even a new model for the Nintendo Switch, just a new color scheme for the Nintendo Switch Lite. That would come and go with all the pomp and circumstance of, you know, most announcements. But no, it kind of blew up. And just like you said, yeah, it became this huge debate. People weren't as excited about the fact that a new Switch color was coming out as they were excited about arguing what color it actually was. The official title was, I believe, Cool Blue. Yeah. It, it, it immediately set, immediately conjured this Twitter argument. It's like, well, no, it's actually purple. It's like, well, no, it's actually blue. We actually created a Twitter poll asking people whether or not they thought it was blue or purple. But that seemed to be the main talking point around the unveiling of a new Switch color. 
and just what 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 even is 2021 it's it's really weird it, it kind of harkens back to that whole like what color is the dress thing yeah exactly you know, like is the dress gold is it is the dress blue yeah it's actually ironically enough speaking of dresses and speaking of fashion we have yet another bizarre animal crossing story we really should have an audio stinger for bizarre animal crossing stories at this point <laughs> It needs to be its own segment at this point. Basically, yes. But it turns out that Maisie Williams, yes, that Maisie Williams of Game of Thrones fame, Arya Stark herself, is now the global sustainability ambassador for the fashion giant H&M. And part of her duties right now are to uh, host influencers and people within the fashion industry on her Animal Crossing world called loop island l-o-o-o-p three o's four o's (laughs) she has this h&m themed fashion island that she's hosting people on where she is showing off a lot of her own custom design and this is being done in the name of virtual fashion sustainability honestly i'm not a big fashion guy myself some uh, there's a few things about the story that kind of confuse me but ultimately Arya stark is hosting fashion shows on her Animal Crossing island. That's the big takeaway for me from this. Just add it to the Biden island, the mayonnaise island, like <laughs> all this weird junk going on with Animal Crossing New Horizons. I mean, it's it's kind of inevitable, you know, as popular as the game is, as in the public consciousness as the game is, this this will not be uh, the last we hear of, of a, a yet another weird Animal Crossing story. Yes. So. Yeah, but that's that's the soundbite. That's the headline. Arya Stark hosting H&M fashion shows on her Animal Crossing island. <laughs> I mean, just, yeah. I, it, I got nothing. It does make me want to check the island out, admittedly. I do really want to. And honestly, yeah. I, I promise you, this is real. This is a thing. We're not trolling you guys. It's 100% real. I just, I, I plead the fifth man, but uh, let's let's kind of sit in this weird pocket for a little bit longer because apparently uh, earlier this week, former Nintendo of America president Reggie fils woke up and just uh, and just said, you know what? I choose chaos. Yeah. <laughs> and he, uh, he posted a troll so legendary on Twitter, it actually got him trending that night. And uh, basically what happened was the official Twitch uh, Twitter account posted, quote, What's the oldest game in your library that remains unplayed? End quote. And Reggie replies, Mother 3 English version. Every time I think it's time to play it, I get trolled and decide to put it off. Maybe I will fire it up this weekend. And he includes a GIF, the classic GIF of of Reggie kind of like nodding (laughs) and looking at the camera. And uh, man, this has just got like so many replies. At the time of this recording, it's got close to 100,000 likes. Um, Like... Almost 3,000 quote tweets, uh, over 12,000 retweets. Uh, he was trending on Twitter that night and um, just a, a troll of the highest order. And I absolutely respect it. It's It very much has this air of, well, I'm quitting my job at GameStop and just throwing up, you know, the deuces to everybody around while wearing those thug life shades. <laughs> it's like, I don't care anymore. I'm going to do whatever I want. So funny. Like, and, and it's got so many people being like, wait, is, is Reggie being for real? Does he just have the English localization of Mother 3 like on his computer or something? <laughs> so Ugh. funny. 
I, I just, I, I just love that. I love the thought that Reggie fils just like has that chilling and all he has to do is fire it up and play through it whenever he wants. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Man, again, that's not even the end of our of our weird headlines this week because the Lego group issued a firmware update. Let me let me just pause and just I'm going to illustrate this because, you know, in 2021, the Lego group can push out a firmware update for Lego figures. We live in a world where there can be firmware updates for Legos. And they did this this past week for the Lego Super Mario figure. And what this firmware update did, it actually was in conjunction with the new uh, Treasure Hunt update for the Lego Super Mario sets. But included in this update is a just a very niche little feature where, you know, when you lay the Super, you know, the Super Mario figure has got a lot of little personality quirks. But one of the things he'll do if you lay the figure down the figure will actually go to sleep and, you know, the eyes will close. He'll start to snore and then you can pick him up and he'll blink and, and kind of wake up again and whatever. Well, now after this firmware update, people notice that there's about a one in 20 chance of when Mario wakes up, he'll actually call out for his brother, Luigi. And that's weird in and of itself, but weirder still is that the Lego group actually responded to somebody posting the video on Facebook, all but confirming that Lego Luigi is on the way. They say here, quote, now that's a very creative way to get his missing brother. We did notice that Lego Mario has started calling for him. We're looking into it and hope to have clarity on why this is soon. Stay tuned, smiley face, end quote. So... Lego Luigi is coming and it may be a situation where you guys may already have official uh, confirmation on this by the time you're hearing this episode. Very possibly. And I know you're going to get it, Seth. I definitely know you're going to get it. Seth's in the process of of very meticulously setting up his Lego Mario sets in his office right now. He's very proud of them. (laughs) I haven't bought all the sets. I have issued, uh, I have illustrated a little bit of restraint but I do have more uh, Lego Mario bricks than I would care to admit. And yes, I, I do want to set up my office and, and have them on display. And yes, Lego Luigi will inevitably be a part of that. And I hope that this Lego Nintendo collaboration continues. I just thought there was such a weird, interesting little way to kind of like almost have an ARG announcement <laughs> for Lego Luigi. Oh, what a bizarre story. Yeah, but coming into the end of our news roundup, uh, we do have a couple quick little PSAs, one of which is that there are some pretty rampant rumors going around now about a uh, quote-unquote Sonic Colors Ultimate. There's a lot of rumors going around about a remaster, a remake, a re-release potentially of the Wii title. And Sonic Colors, for my money, was one of the better Sonic platformers that released during the off-maligned 3D Sonic era. I personally really enjoyed Sonic Colors and I love that it has a fantastic theme song by the way Reach for the Stars is an amazing theme song but yeah uh, yeah that might be coming they may be re-releasing some version of the Wii slash DS game from 11 god it's been 11 years now good lord but yeah we may be getting a new Sonic Color version on the Nintendo Switch very soon yeah unreal to me that it's been that long and uh, yeah I, I very vividly I uh, remember working at GameStop when that game came out. Gorgeous box art, too, for that game, by the way. 
And um, it was just, yeah, it was kind of like Sonic by way of Mario Galaxy. It was very much like me too. Can I do Mario Galaxy also? <laughs> Not anywhere near as good, but a valiant effort and a really, really solid 3D Sonic game. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I actually liked the DS version quite a bit too. So with the moniker Sonic Colors Ultimate, I'm kind of hoping that they actually include both versions of the game in some way, if there is a way to do that. But we'll see. This is just a rumor for now, but I've got to imagine as we're ramping up, this is a big anniversary year for Sonic. And um, I, I've got to imagine this is not going to be the last time we report on a Sonic thing uh, here in the very near future. So looking forward to it. Probably not. And if you've heard us talk about Power Rangers Battle for the Grid at all, we did an indie showcase on it. And I've yes. talked a few times about it here on the show. But if you've somehow not seen it, Power Rangers Battle for the Grid is doing a crossover with Street Fighter V. Ryu and Chun-Li are coming to Battle for the Grid. Now, there was a crossover between Street Fighter and Power Rangers Legacy Wars, which is essentially the mobile cousin of Battle mm -hmm. for the Grid, where Guile, Chun-Li, Bison, and several other Street Fighter characters showed up in the mobile game. However, now we can confirm that not only are Ryu and Chun-Li coming to the console game, but Crimson Hawk Ranger Ryu and Blue <laughs> Phoenix Ranger Chun-Li are coming to Power Rangers Battle for the Grid. And uh, I'm of two minds about this. I've got one side of my brain that says, this is amazing, and I want all of this right now. Uh, because it is amazing. Definitely watch the trailer. They're very much the versus... Uh, they're very much the versus series versions of these characters, like the Marvel versus Capcom versions of those characters, which makes sense considering Battle for the Grid is basically a Marvel versus Capcom style game. And, and it's amazing and it's cool, but there is another side of my brain that says there's so many really cool Power Rangers characters out there. There really should be more. There's really a couple characters mm. that should be in this game that aren't in there yet. And I know that... When it comes to guest characters, this debate is constantly coming up about whether or not those characters deserve to be in the game versus other characters from the lore, from the mythos. So I, I am admittedly torn. I'm going to I'm going to appreciate it because this is what's happening. But uh, I really hope they do continue to to work on this game and continue to add content to Power Rangers Battle for the Grid. And I'm hoping that this collaboration will get enough new eyes on the project, will sell enough new copies of the project, that they will have enough resources to continue to work on the game. And in fact, it's such a big collaboration, they're even releasing a brand new version of Battle for the Grid to coincide with the release of the Street Fighter content. It comes out next month, May 25th. The Blue Phoenix Chun-Li and Crimson Hawk Ranger Ryu are releasing alongside the Super Edition of Power Rangers Battle for the Grid, which will release at $49.99 and contain every piece of downloadable content currently available for the game. I mean, look, it sold one copy of the game. Mm -hmm. I picked it up. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was definitely the one. Like When I saw that trailer, I was like, Welp, I, I guess it's finally time for me to pull the trigger and buy this. So yeah, I picked it up. I bought all the all the content currently available for the game, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited. And look, they've actually already confirmed that it is not going to be the end 
of downloadable content for Battle for the Grid. There was somebody who posted um, when they, you know, typically when companies release like a super edition, it does sort of imply that that's going to be the end of uh, support, the end of content. And somebody replied on their Twitter. They're like, this isn't the end, right? And they responded, it's not the end with a bunch of uh, colored hearts representing each of the Rangers. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, they're, they're already kind of confirming that they're going to continue to support the game. And like I said, they've already sold one copy due to this collaboration. I'm sure they're going to uh, sell many, many more. Yes, I am very much looking forward to more and more content coming to Power Rangers Battle for the Grid. And again, we did an indie showcase on it a while ago. Do go back and check that out. But it's been such a jam-packed news week this week. What are your guys' thoughts on all the goings-on in the Nintendo zeitgeist? Let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. And as always, do please like and subscribe to All In, a Nintendo podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Be it SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, or iTunes. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us each and every Saturday, making us part of your weekly rotation. Namaste. Well, talking about Indie World, the game we'll be covering in our Indie Showcase actually, as it turns out, has a bit of history with Indie World presentations. Um, As a matter of fact, the Switch version was actually first revealed during the very first one that aired in Japan. But uh, this is a game I've been wanting to cover for a while now on the show. So for this week's Indie Showcase, we're talking about the game that you play 60 seconds at a time, Minute. That's right. This week we are talking about Minute, spelled M-I-N-I-T. It is a top-down adventure game coming to us from... They don't really have a studio name. It's like four independent developers uh, one right. guy who used to be part of an independent development studio, but these four people just kind of got together, didn't really come up with a studio name, but just decided to create this game and release it upon the world. So thank you for that. I think this should be called the Minutemen or Minutewomen or something. I think that would be a, <laughs> an appropriate name for the studio, especially since they're going back to the franchise. I believe they just released a new Minute game on steam or something recently they had a uh called like minute racer or something like that yeah which was um it was like for i think they made it for a charity fundraiser and all the proceeds of the game goes to charity or something like that so it's kind of like a fun little minute spin-off game which was interesting <laughs> but like we were saying minute is a monochromatic top-down adventure game very much in the same vein as the old Legend of Zelda games like the first one, Link to the Past, Link's Awakening. And that was kind of one of the reasons we wanted to talk about it this week specifically was not only was Minute shown off at the first ever Indie World Showcase in Japan, but we thought with the 29th anniversary of Link to the Past coming this right previous week that uh, it just kind of put it back in our minds and it just said, Oh, Hey, that's a really cool game. We should probably talk with our listeners about let's do that thing. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a game that I've wanted to cover for a long time on the show. It's, it's really good. I like it a lot. And again, the, the kind of core concept of minute is just like you said, it's a top down, you know, adventure game kind of in the style of the legend of Zelda, of course, but it's also got these kind of like the, these sort of almost point and click adventure elements where 
it's very much like I need to figure out how to get this item, which will allow me to get this other item, which will allow me to do this, you know? And, and the, the big kind of like hook and the, the big premise around all of it though, is that you pick up at the very beginning of the game, a cursed sword that basically means that you have to, it puts this curse on you. That means that you have to play the game in 60 second loops. You will die after 60 seconds and have to restart. Yes, after every 60 seconds, you die and you respawn back at your house. The game does take a little bit from roguelikes in that regard with the whole loop function. But just like roguelikes, you do get to keep important items and heart containers and upgrades. You do get to keep those after you've collected them. But yes, everything that you do has to be done essentially within 60 seconds of leaving your house. And you really get the feel for how long a minute is in this game because it doesn't seem like a long time and it's not. However, as quick paced as the game is, you would be pretty surprised at how much you can get done about how far you can traverse this map in just a minute. Yeah, and they, and they play with it really, really well. The, the entire game is designed around this premise because not only do you retain key items with each loop, but there are also several kind of like unlockable shortcuts and like new homes that you can wake up in and, and, and kind of like go back and forth between kind of ways to make traversing the world easier. And it's very much like Majora's Mask. I mean, this game is kind of like a mix of like Majora's Mask and Link's Awakening. I get strong Link's Awakening vibes. Yeah, I was actually going to mention that as well. Maybe just because yeah. you have this house that happens to be right there on the beach. And I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're literally going and picking up the sword off of the beach. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, that was kind of my first big. I was like, oh, OK, I see what we're doing here. That's yeah. what we're doing. Got it. But yeah, just like you said, after you pick up this cursed sword, you fall into this 60 second loop trap where you're constantly dying. One of the funny things is there's a mailbox right outside your house. And inside is a note that says, I hope this gets to you in time, but don't pick up the cursed sword on the beach. The funny thing <laughs> is, is you have to hit the mailbox with the sword in order to knock the letter out. Right. So. <laughs> right. Like that, that's just one example of the way that they play with this time mechanic and, and like the way that they play with this kind of thing for either the sake of humor or puzzle solving. Like there's, for example, there's a character who talks really, really slowly so yeah. it's just yeah. like burning up the timer on this thing. And I, I don't want to spoil some of these moments for you because I, I think the game's writing and charm and character is such a huge part of it. That's another reason why it reminds me so much of Link's Awakening because it's just this kind of dense little experience that has just like, it's just chock full of like charming little characters and good writing and fun little puzzles and, and a really good, gameplay loop I, I i really i'm really shocked at how well they managed to make this work I, I think that a lot of our listeners hearing us say this is a game that you play on 60 second loops like that might turn somebody off just from the face yeah. of it that i think that sounds a lot more intimidating yeah when i first heard about the game the first time i even thought about playing it that was my gut reaction is you die every 60 seconds right every minute you have to you know you get spawned back at your house. I saw that and immediately I was like, uh, I don't know about that. 
But I finally decided to pick it up. And one of the big saving graces of the game, one of the best decisions they made when designing this game is the movement is pretty brisk. It's oh, yeah. not you're not lightning fast, but you can traverse a single screen in about three seconds. Um, again, we're talking a top-down map format akin to the old Legend of Zelda games, so you know exactly what the map is going to look like. Uh, each section of the map is its own screen. You go up the top of the screen and you transport yourself to the next part of the map. But uh, again, with the the density involved, that's another really good decision they made with this game is not only can you traverse pretty quickly, but there's a lot going on unless it's kind of specifically designed that way. A lot of the stuff, a lot of the tasks you're going to have to do on the first run are not going to be super tight on the timer. Right. There's still a lot of discovery in the game. There's still a lot of exploration in the game, but in terms of, the stuff that you need to get done on your initial playthrough, you're going to find yourself not really too cramped for time, which is weird to say, considering you only have 60 seconds from the time you leave your house. And again, just to echo something Seth said a little earlier, uh, you do have a house, but there are several houses, quote unquote, in the game. You have this trailer, you have a hotel. There are several places that count as houses in the game. They're essentially just new spawn points and you can reactivate them as needed. So as the map gets a little bit bigger, you do have access to new starting points at the beginning of each run. Yeah. Which is, which is really cool, really handy and really kind of, again, lets you see how much mileage they get out of what should be a really limiting time constraint. Like you said, there's quite a bit you can actually get done in just a minute. And despite the fact it's basically a two-button game, I was fairly surprised and fairly impressed with the amount of variety they were able to pack in to this game. You grab the sword, and the sword is going to be your main item, your main weapon that you're going to use throughout the course of the game. You will get other items. Very notably, you get a uh, a watering can toward the beginning of the game that's going to help you out with a few things. And you'll get other items. You'll get other upgrades that are also very Legend of Zelda-esque. You'll get new gloves that will help you push boulders or cut down trees, essentially to remove obstacles that really kind of feel like nods or homages to something like the Power Glove from A Link to the Past. Right. So you will get items like that. You'll have active items that you can use with the A button, and then you'll have more passive items, buffs that you can use. I think there's 16, 18 different items in the game, different mm-hmm. essential powers, upgrades that you can get. So your capabilities will increase throughout the course of the game. It's not like you're, you do have a fairly limited move set, but even that expands a little bit more than I think most people would expect it does. Yeah, especially again, just considering how bite-sized and how, presumably limiting it should be there there's quite a bit here in terms of like I, dense is the word i keep coming back to it they they really packed a lot into this little game into this little world with all these puzzles and i think that the 60 second time loop really adds a, an interesting layer of depth to it, it kind of triggers something in your brain where you can sort of like 60 seconds removes the playing field of possibility, so to speak with some of the puzzles, because you know, when you, when you look at some of this stuff, it's like, okay, this has to be something that I can solve within 60 seconds. And 
not only that, you know, it's either something that I have to solve, something I have to wrap my head around, or it may be a situation where there's an item that I don't have yet that I need. And it sort of creates this really interesting explorative, like explorative is such a weird word to use for a game that is so fast paced and, and technically shouldn't be explorative, but they really found an interesting way to, to make this game work in, in its own limitations. Um, and even the visual style is, <laughs> is very much a, a minimalist approach. Oh, yes. If you've ever seen a Commodore 64 game, this is what we are talking about. When I said monochrome earlier on in the Indie Showcase, I was not kidding. Like, we're talking like Downwell has a bigger color spectrum than this game, legitimately. <laughs> yes. This is quite literally just black and white. There is yes. no gray. There is no, you know, Downwell at least has red. There's none of that. This is only black <laughs> and white. It was kind of giving me like... The, the looking at the main character, especially, it was kind of giving me like Tamagotchi vibes. I, mm, you <laughs> noticed that too? You yeah. noticed how the Tom? Oh man. Yeah. See, this is why I like you. This is why I like you, Seth. <laughs> I was totally going to reference Tamagotchi with this main character. It's the that's lips. exactly what it looks like. Exactly. <laughs> it's that weird little duck thing. You remember that uh, the birds and beans WarioWare yes. Pioro, game? Yes. Yeah, Pioro. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of a low res version of Pioro from WarioWare. Yeah. That's the main character that we're talking about. Although the main character in this game carries a sword. Yeah. <laughs> yes, a cursed sword. A sword, yes. And the, and like the environmental detail kind of gave me like the old Apple II Oregon Trail vibes. Yeah. Yeah, I can you know? see that. So, I, I it's it's very very much a again minimalist art style, but the you know, one of the things that really impresses me about it, though, despite the fact that this is just minimalist pixel art, despite the fact that this is just black and white, they still manage. I mean, you never mistake the thing like like you see a bull and the bull is the bull, <laughs> you know, everything still stands out. The main character still stands out um, amongst everything else. It, it would have been so easy to get visually lost in the way that a lot of those old games did. But because it has to be so dense, because every screen has to mean something, you don't get nearly as much kind of aimless wandering as many other games like that. Because again, you only have 60 seconds. The game, as you might imagine, is incredibly fast paced. The game is incredibly fast paced. And there is combat in the game. There is a little bit of combat in the game. But the vast majority of the combat in the game is very deliberate because, you, again, you don't really have time to stop and do combat situations unless it's actively going to be helping you. If you're playing a top-down adventure game like The Legend of Zelda, every so often to break up the gameplay, you'll fight a moblin or you'll fight a guard or something like that. In this game, the few combat scenarios that you'll find yourself in are probably going to grant you an ability or a health power-up or something like that. And then after you've done that, there is absolutely no reason to engage with those enemies anymore. You just don't have the time. And I just really like that from a design perspective because there, I'm sure there was such a temptation there to add more kind of frivolous items and more right. frivolous elements into the game. But because of the whole hook of the 60 second time loop, because of that roguelike element in the game, that 
affected the design of this game. That had to have affected the design of this game immensely. They couldn't have designed it nearly the same way that many other top-down adventure games would have been designed. And from that aspect, it is really impressive how they were able to slowly guide the player. I say slowly, but how they were able to guide the player from the beginning to the end. Obviously, there are going to be loops where you are essentially just trying to figure stuff out. However, the the very natural way of figuring stuff out on your first run felt incredibly organic because of the relatively, I don't want to call it linear. It is top down. It is relatively open world. But the way the world is designed, it, it specifically guides you where you need to be most of the time. Obviously, there's a little bit of leeway there. But most of the time, you have a good idea of roundabouts where you're supposed to go and what you're supposed to be doing. But there is Mm -hmm. just enough exploration there to, I think, keep it really interesting. You don't have your mission set up at the bottom. The game doesn't constantly have mission objectives for you to do. You do have to find those. You do have to go out of your way to find those. But they're close enough and they're well-placed enough that... Uh, again, the pace. The pace of the game is incredibly important with with a title like this. And I think from the placement of everything, especially in the first run, I'm really, really impressed with how well they were able to to balance everything out. It had to be a very difficult game to design. And it's oh, definitely... Sure. It's it's definitely an old school experience in that way because, yeah, the game does not hold your hand. You can and will have entire loops where it's just about hey, I need to figure this out. And there may be loops and there will be loops that you'll have where it's like, oh man, I just realized I'm not going to have enough time to do what I need to do here. This was basically a fact-finding mission. <laughs> and to sort of, um, to to go along with that, they've included a kind of kill yourself uh, option where you can basically just with the press of a button, uh, reset the loop and and kind of end it there and, and you know start fresh, which is nice. It's kind of a godsend in some of those scenarios. They didn't really have to do that. They could have just made you wait it out if you needed to or whatever. So that was kind of nice. Um, And and yeah, I I think that just like what they're able to do with this setup is really, really impressive, like you said. Um, And I got to be honest, like it it just brings you back to those more old school experiences. There's even like a a way, I'm not going to spoil how, but there is a way you can get kind of hints in the game. Oh, yeah. And... And, and even that kind of harkens back to a more old school experience and more modern games. You would have hints that would just kind of point you in the direction that you need to go very explicitly. And this one, they're much more vague and they're kind of like in these little rhyme puzzles. And yeah. there's just something kind of like, I don't know. There's just something that really like hits my nostalgia, you know, like just in just that right way. It takes me back. It's a very old school experience. Well, I do wonder, speaking of old school experiences, we've talked about the visual style of the game, the minimalist kind of Commodore 64 look of the game. And I do wonder how much of that does play into the fact that uh, I'm sure a lot of you out there are wondering how quickly you can start up each new run, Mm -hmm. because that is going to be a major factor in a lot of people's enjoyment of this game. Because if it takes you know, 10 seconds to start up each run. If there's a load time to start up each run, that can really kill the pace of the game. And I do wonder how much the visual style, how much the Commodore 64 monochromatic look played into that. But I can say pretty confidently that this is among the fastest 
loaded games that I've played on the Nintendo Switch yet. Genuinely, the first time I booted it up on my Nintendo Switch, from the moment I first booted it up the game, I was playing the game in the gameplay within, no joke, about three seconds. Yeah. You boot up the game, it's instantaneous. You hit new game and you're just in the game within literal frames. The load time is negligible, essentially to the point of there being effectively no load times whatsoever. You hit that kill button. If that's your, if you find yourself in a place where, you know, starting a run would be your best option at that point. And again, it's instantaneous within frames. You are starting a new run. So uh, I am really glad that they were able to, to iron that out at least because if you did have something where it was a, a five second, even just a five second load time right. in between runs, then it would have grinded this game to a halt. I feel like it would have incredibly impacted the experience of people. But uh, again, just finding yourself in a situation like, nah, no, let me try this again. Kill. Boom. You're immediately back at the house and you're playing again. Uh, in less than the time it takes you to blink your eyes. So again, another very good decision, another very good thing. I'm glad they did. And one area of this game that is kind of maybe the most maximalist, <laughs> like probably the one area of this game that's a little more complex. We just start talking about Beast Wars or something? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm down to talk about Beast Wars, but... Uh... I'm but too. No, Some other day. Another day. Some another day. We'll table that for now. But uh, but no. One of the areas of the game, you know, the visual style very minimalist. You know, like you said, from a technical perspective, very fast loading, very old school experience. The soundtrack, while it does fall in line with the old school kind of chip tune aesthetic, it does also feel like a more video game soundtrack. And and I think the soundtrack in this game is really something special. It's really good, and I I just I I thought this was so funny because um because the composer Yukio Kallio um actually went on to do the Fall Guys soundtrack, and what's weird is listening to the two in conjunction with each other. I can kind of see it. Minute almost feels like a demaked version of the kind of more catchy bombastic nature of the fall guys soundtrack that like the, the soundtrack to minute is a little more complex than I think a lot of people would be expecting. And I think it's really good. It is. I, this is something I was talking to you about uh, off mic, but there just seems to be a really good crop of chip tune of retro style of eight and 16 bit stylized musical artists out there because yeah, again, this the soundtrack in this game is really, really good. Not just the overall soundtrack, but early on in the game, you'll come across a jukebox. And if you hit it with mm. your sword, you can change the songs. Honestly, every song in that jukebox is a banger. It's really good. <laughs> I was telling you, Seth, I would legitimately want the CD off of that jukebox. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really great little soundtrack. I think we're starting to see, because like you said, I mean, it seems like, especially when it comes to chiptune music, we're seeing so many games have really, really standout soundtracks. And, and I think it's it's worth noting that this is maybe the result of like the people who grew up with, you know, the musicians who are, who are now in their 20s, 30s, who grew up with these games that influenced us. You know, we're, we're starting to see them make their own music. So it's it's really cool to kind of see this new wave, almost the the next generation 
of great video game music composers are kind of in the here and now and, and minute is no exception to that. I really liked it. All right. But I did want to really quick before we get into the extra modes, I did want to, to call you out for one thing because you did lie to our wonderful audience. You lied to them, Seth. Oh no. You'll have to forgive Seth. Seth said a little earlier on that there's not even gray in the game. That's not technically true because I do want to talk about the options in this game ever so briefly. Okay. You can mess with quite a few things in the settings. You can mess with the brightness and you can mess with the darkness. You can actually go from 100 down to zero darkness. And that essentially turns it from a black and white game to a gray and white game. So Ah. if you wanted to do that, technically gray is in the game, even though it's still monochromatic. But I did want to shout out the settings real quick, not just to talk about the fact that there's gray in there as I sit here like a jerk, but... (laughs) (laughs) there's also a weird random setting in the game. You can actually turn vegan mode on or off. And according Mm -hmm. to the game that changes your dietary preference. That's really (laughs) all it does. You can turn it on and off. I genuinely don't think it does anything in the game, but it is really cool that it's there. So it it does one thing. Oh, does it actually do something? I don't want to spoil it. It does one thing. And all I'll say is that if you turn it off and on a bunch, it may unlock something. That's that's all I'll say. <laughs> ah, okay. Fair enough. Well, I didn't know that. I might have to try that. I love stuff like that in these games. Obviously, we talked about Easter eggs last week. I love seeing stuff like this in this game. But the one thing I really wanted to mention about the settings was the fact that obviously we've talked at length about how fast-paced the game is. This is a fantastic game to speed run. Yes. If that's something that you're really into, this is a fantastic game to speed run because that's the entire point is to get stuff done as quickly as possible because you only have 60 seconds at a time to do it. And to that end, in the settings menu, you can actually turn a speed run counter on. If speed right. running is your thing, you can actually have an in-game speedrun counter that not only keeps track of the cumulative game time, but the number of runs in real time that you're using to play the game. So if if you are a speedrunner, this is definitely going to be the game for you. And it's not a really long game. My first playthrough was 91 runs within 71 minutes. It took me just over an hour and 10 minutes to beat the game on my first playthrough. Again, incredibly fast paced. There's a lot packed into that one hour. Oh yeah. However, that, that first playthrough is basically just the warm up. Yeah. Because you have got an entire new game plus mode called second run, which honestly changes the game. Like completely. I've played hard modes before. This one is on another level. It really is. Yeah, because it changes the game in some really fundamental ways. Um, Chiefly that your 60 second timer is now a 40 second timer. Jeez. Your cursed sword is now a broken sword and is much less effective. And you will only ever have one heart. And it's a lot more difficult as a result. Yeah, you can still collect those health upgrades. You can still collect those heart containers from the game, but you collect them and they immediately break. You start the normal run. You start your first run with two hearts and you increase your health from there. But in second run, you never get more than one heart. 
And just like Seth said, you have 20 seconds lopped off of each run. And that fundamentally changes the game. But even in addition to that, things that didn't used to hurt you hurt you. There are cactuses in the game in a desert section that right. on your first playthrough, they're just there. They're just little decorations. But on second run, that those actually hurt you. Those will kill you if you run into them. And it's all of these little changes, things that you have to buy in the game are more expensive in second run. And even on top of that, there are different layouts for things. There's a there's a task very early on in the game that sees you defeating five crabs. And it's fairly self-explanatory. It's fairly straightforward when you play through it the first time. But in second run, the layout of those crabs has changed. And especially with the reduced time, I beat the game in about... 70 minutes on my first playthrough it legitimately took me about half an hour just to finish that initial crab mission toward the beginning of the game this is the kind of dis you know discrepancy we're talking about in terms of the regular run versus the second run because in addition to all the other difficulty spikes in the game from having a less effective sword to less health to less time the 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 thing about having the less time is really what sells it because mm -hmm. the 60 seconds, you really appreciate those extra 20 seconds when you get to second run because everything that you have to do in second run, just about everything that you have to accomplish in second run comes down to trying to figure out how to do it, trying to take 9, 10, 12, 20 different runs to find out exactly how to do something because you might have a little bit of extra time to spare on your first playthrough. A lot of the tasks you're going to have to accomplish in second run are going to leave you with maybe two seconds left on your timer before right. you respawn again. So you'll spend again, quite a few runs just trying to map out the perfect run just to get that one uh, just to get that one mission accomplished. It is an incredibly different experience to play through the game on second run. Even just with those little simple changes, it really does make the game a completely different experience. It almost reminds me of Caro Blaster in that way. Yeah, yeah, where, I can see that. Yeah, where, where those additional like modes and runs kind of really do change the game in fundamental ways. Not quite in the same uh, level of depth that we saw in Caro Blaster, but again, just those little changes really do add a whole other layer to uh, to minute and make it much more challenging in, in a good way and just really shows how strong the game's core design is. And then there's another unlockable game mode called Mary's Mode Yep, that is basically the complete antithesis of, of this, what everything the game is, where you play as Mary the Ghost, who is a side character that you encounter in the game. And it's kind of like a, easy mode like a free roam mode where they completely eliminate the time limit mechanic and being able to backtrack and explore at your leisure rather than respawning at a button push um which kind of gives it another different flavor and i am really glad that they did something like that because once you that that's always a good thing to have as a completion bonus is to basically take all the shackles of the game off and say, okay, right. you've, you've done everything. Just go have a little bit of fun. Just go do whatever you want to do. That, I think, is really kind of the best completion bonus that you can give a player. And that's exactly what 
they did here. No longer you're, are you constrained by the the timer or the clock and they were just go have fun go explore go do what you want you've done everything else in the game you have completed second run you've done everything that we have asked of you just go enjoy yourself now yeah and at that moment you know you've obviously become intimately familiar with the game's world because you've done so much in it because you do have to basically 100% the game in order to unlock Mary's mode i did tease a little bit earlier there may be another way of doing it but um <laughs> You, uh, But yeah, you will basically be super familiar with the map already. So the ability to freely explore the map and see really how intricately designed this little world really is, is a really nice treat, a really nice completion reward. And, and I really liked that. But but I mean, yeah, I mean, if, if it's not abundantly clear, we both really, really enjoyed Minute. I do want to shout out, uh, we've already kind of mentioned this, but there is a massive sale going on on the eShop right now. And Minute is another game that is currently on sale is actually normally retails for $9.99 is currently on sale until the 25th for $3.99. So if you guys are listening to this and this game sounds cool to you again, we highly recommend it. You can pick minute up for an absolute steal on the eShop right now. Yeah. $4 for a really good experience, especially if you're a speedrunner. we very highly recommend the game. If you're a fan of top down adventure titles, we highly recommend the game. Trust us, even if you're just going through on a first playthrough, that 60 second run, that 60 second time limit isn't nearly as hobbling as you might think it is. The game is really solid, incredibly well designed, great soundtrack, really fun characters. You know, just go check it out. And if you do, let us know what you thought about it. Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter and tell us what your thoughts of Minute were. But so much of a focus has been put this week on independent games and independent game studios. And for those of you who have ever listened to our show, you'll know that we've spoken with quite a few indie developers here on All In. And the question that we always give them right at the end of each interview is, if given the opportunity, what Nintendo IP would you love to work on? And we've gotten some really interesting answers over the course of our first year of doing this show. Greg Labanov talked about wanting to do Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Uh Adam Tierney from Way Forward refused to answer. No comment. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> but uh, we also have a few ideas and a few thoughts on some collaborations we would really like to see between the big in and the various incredibly talented independent studios out there. And we thought that we would collect them for you in this week's top five. So Nintendo and indie game collaborations is not necessarily something that is unprecedented or unheard of the original inspiration behind us asking that question to all of the independent developers that we've had the pleasure of speaking with over this past year of the show was cadence of Hyrule of course allowing an independent developer to play with the Zelda IP in a really cool unique rhythm game spin-off so that that sort of is what got our brain rattling around about this and just over the time you know again we've We've spent a lot of time talking to independent developers on the show. We love to celebrate indie games here on the show. And I mean, inevitably, we have come up with a ton of dream scenarios. The indie devs that we would love to see work with Nintendo IP. I do want to say these are just dream scenarios. We do not have any insider knowledge. We have a lot of friends that are independent developers, of course. But that does not mean that we have insider knowledge that any of these are real things. So... Full disclosure there. Yeah, as of right now, we have no clue 
how viable any of these would be. We just know that there's a lot of Nintendo properties out there, a lot of, frankly, underutilized Nintendo properties out there. And we see so many talented independent studios out there that would be perfect to bring those IPs back into the fold. Absolutely. And to start off the list with my number five, you know, Shinen Multimedia is a really talented indie studio that we like a lot. Of course, we have talked about their game, The Tourist, on the show. Mm-hmm. And notably, they're also behind the Fast RMX slash Fast Racing Neo games for Nintendo. And all I can think of playing those games is, man, give these guys F-Zero, <laughs> right? I mean, just like the, playing these games, you can definitely tell that this is a scenario where it's almost like they wish they had the F-Zero IP, but they don't have access to it. So it's like, hey, let's just make our own version of it. But the entire time playing, especially Fast RMX on the Nintendo Switch, it is just a phenomenal little racing game that is so like so in line with those classic F-Zero experiences. And one of the reasons that I wanted to shout out Shinen specifically is because they're one of the independent developers that I think has such a handle on Nintendo hardware. With with the Fast Racing series and with the Tourist, and we shouted this out when we talked about the Tourist, their games just run incredibly well on Nintendo hardware. They just get it. Like they just understand it. And I would love to see these guys get their hands on F-Zero, make a full proper F-Zero game because, you know, Nintendo seems to have forgotten that it exists with the exception Mm. of uh, Smash Brothers trailers. But uh, I I would just love to see these guys get a hold of that license and make a new great F-Zero game. Yeah, it blows my mind how underrepresented that entire subgenre of racing games is. You have games like Thumper, you have games like Wipeout, and you have games like the Fast series, like Fast RMX. It it blows my mind that we don't have more marquee titles in that genre. Racing games are such a huge, huge part of the gaming landscape, and games like that are so different from Mario Kart that Nintendo could very easily have more than one franchise running concurrently out there. They have how many platformers that they're running concurrently that they still have, you know, their toes dipped in the pool. So we can have another racing franchise from Nintendo. And yeah, sure. Go ahead, Seth. Give it to Shinin Games. I'd be down to see what they'd be capable of. Please, please. And by the way, shout out to our friend Doug Bowser, who I know is writing our list down right now. Yeah. Uh, and making these things happen <laughs> because man, uh, again, F zero Shinen games, you know, like online multiplayer, just like, Oh, I want it so bad. Well, going into my number five, I just mentioned Adam Tierney a couple minutes ago, a incredibly talented director over at way forward. One of yes. our, if not our favorite independent uh, development studio on the planet at this exact moment. And uh, Way Forward has such an incredible pedigree, not just because of Shantae. Adam Tierney specifically was the director behind the amazing River City Girls. And mm-hmm. Way Forward has such a, an expansive catalog, but they are still kind of known for incredibly fun, vibrant, Metroidvania-style platformers because of Shantae. And there is a Nintendo franchise that is so underrepresented, especially in the West. We have only gotten one game in the West from this franchise, and I would love to see what WayForward could do with the legendary Starfy. 
Oh, nice. That is a good call. Yeah, Legendary Starfy was released on the Nintendo DS. A very, imagine Kirby underwater. That's basically what the Legendary Starfy is. It's incredibly kid-friendly, fairly easy, with a lot of very vibrant, fun, goofy little characters. But the game just controlled really well. It was a standout title on the Nintendo DS. Again, the only game in that franchise that has made its way to the West, of which there are six or seven, I think now. There's an entire franchise of Starfy games over in Japan. And amazingly, we haven't gotten most of them. But especially with WayForward's penchant for working with Japanese developers, specifically in their collaboration with River City Girls, maybe put Adam Tierney at the helm of another collaboration with a Nintendo property from Japan. I would love to see what WayForward, a company that is incredibly ingrained and excels at fun, vibrant, Metroidvania-style action platformers, I would love to see what they could do with the legendary Starfy. You can almost, I mean, you can almost see it, especially with that hand-drawn art style that WayForward is kind of known for. I mean, yeah, I, I would love that. And Legendary Starfy is such an underrated little Nintendo series. Yeah. I, uh, man, that was a really good game back on the DS. Good call. Yeah. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Blew my mind when I when I found out that was like the fifth game in the series or something like that. I really stand out title on the DS for me. Again, not very difficult, but just fun. And that's what you want from a lot of games. It's just fun. If you've ever played or enjoyed a Kirby game or one of the easier Mario games, check out the Legendary Starfy on the Nintendo DS. Absolutely do. Going into my number four, though, this is actually something that we did hear uh, some interest from an actual independent developer that we had on the show. My number four would be Star Tropics by Matthew Toronto. Ah, yes. This yes. was actually, if you if you guys have not listened to that interview, please go back and listen. That was a great interview talking with Matthew. And when we asked him that question, he said, hey, I actually pitched Star Tropics to Nintendo. And he gave some really cool insight to Nintendo's approach to working with independent developers. And ever since he said that, and I've talked about Star Tropics, Star Tropics might be just under Banjo-Kazooie for like the series I bring up the most on this show. <laughs> um, but uh, I've talked about how much I want to see Star Tropics return. And I- I've even talked about, I think we did a, uh, a top five with like our kind of dream Nintendo revivals. And I just really think that Star Tropics would work really well today as a kind of, Saturday morning cartoon kind of vibe, like a like an Indiana Jones by way of a Saturday morning cartoon kind of thing. And Matthew's style is so invocative of that. And he has got a deep reverence for these old school Nintendo games. He is so, he's such a fan, right? And, and it's so obvious in all of his work with Brawl and the Family, just talking to him for a while. I mean, we just talked about games with him for a little bit, you know? And, and I mean, it's just like, his passion is so clearly there and obviously he is a composer. So he would do right by the music. He's actually got a, uh, a piece of star tropics music that he composed on his YouTube channel. I'll leave a link to that in the description. And he's passionate about the IP in a way that I feel like is needed. And I would love to see his take on star tropics. I would just, I would love to see this series come back and I would love to see somebody like Matthew Toronto at the helm of it. 
Nice. And if you're unfamiliar with Star Tropics, if anything we said about Minute interested you, if you're a fan of top-down adventure games at all, that's what Star right. Tropics is. It's essentially a westernized version of the old Legend of Zelda top-down adventure game. So if those are the types of games you went to, definitely check out Star Tropics on the NSO NES app. It's on there, it's available. And you should definitely play it if those are the types of games you're interested in. And yeah, Tadpole Trouble Encore was a really, really cool little title. And just like you said, Seth, Matthew Toronto is very passionate about what he does. And I'm I'm confident that he would do right by the IP. Yeah, he absolutely would. And and again, I would just I, I could really just see that series working today as just a fun little I mean, we don't have games like that really, you know. I, I would just really like to see his take on that and Again, this is another series where I want to see Nintendo pick it up and dust it off. I mean, Star Tropics has really kind of come back into the the kind of cult classic consciousness, uh, especially now that it's available on NSO. And I, I just I think now's the time to bring it back, man. I would certainly love to see it. I kind of put Star Tropics into my E3 2021 predictions. Right. I threw that into one of the B plus grade Nintendo IPs that I think might be making a comeback along with F zero. So we'll see yes, if please. that does wind up happening. We will see, but going into my number four, there is another franchise that I kind of pseudo predicted might be making a comeback alongside Star Tropics alongside F zero. And that is Star Fox. Ah, yes. Star Fox is criminally underrepresented on newer consoles. I, the last console game, was it honestly Star Fox? No, it was Star Fox Zero. Zero. It was Star yeah. Fox Zero, yeah. But that made such a that made such little impact. I honestly forgot that even existed for a second. The Star yeah. Fox franchise really needs a new amazing game. Nintendo is so good at consistently making amazing games. Just do one for Star Fox. And I think... I think the perfect person, I think the perfect studio to help them with that would be Sayonara Wild Hearts Samogo. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, we did an indie showcase on Sayonara Wild Hearts a little, I think, late last year. And uh, talk about a trippy, trippy game, man. But it's so good. It's essentially the game describes itself as a playable Album. It's incredibly music centric. However, there are a ton of sections in the game that are incredibly reminiscent of Star Fox, and they all control with absolute fluid perfection. The game controls incredibly well, and I could just imagine that control scheme being married to the actual Star Fox IP. If you could give me a Star Fox game that controlled like that, I would be a happy Eric. I love Sinar Wildheart so much. And I, I love the music. And I, that, that was such a great game. And like, yeah, you're going to see, I think, a common theme, probably with both of our lists, honestly, the kind of like revival. I mean, we there are so many Nintendo IP that we want to see come back. And, you know, these, these indie studios could really give them a shot in the arm and really give it a, a new a, a new lease on life almost. And yeah, I would love to see Star Fox with, uh, with that kind of, flair to it and i might be talking about star fox a little bit later maybe i don't know we'll see (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes quite but going into my number three i am actually talking about a another kind of retro revival dream scenario uh we all know here that i love kid icarus uprising 
Can confirm. Can confirm. It's my favorite 3DS game. I love that game. Recently, uh, Mr. Sakurai did say like, hey, I'm super busy with uh, with Smash Brothers. If there is a Kid Icarus game being worked on, it's not by me <laughs> kind of thing. So, you know, they, he did kind of dash our hopes for that. But I would really love to see Kid Icarus be taken on by super giant games. Mm. If you play Hades for even just a few minutes, the way that they have taken these gods and deities from mythology and personified them, granted, it's it's definitely on the more mature bent, and Kid Icarus is definitely not quite at that level of maturity, but seeing the way that they tackle that really kind of put that image in my head of like, man, it would be so cool to see them work with the Kid Icarus IP and to tackle these characters, to give them voice. And, and I mean, something they did so well with Uprising was personifying some of these mythological characters and Supergiant is so good at that. But even beyond that, you know, something that is present in every Supergiant game is just the pitch perfect balance and gameplay and their approach to like combat the their design tenants the core design tenants of every super giant game is something that i would love to see implemented into a brand new kid icarus title i mean it just it, it seems like a match made in heaven no pun intended i could see that honestly if you changed it from being a roguelike to a more standard action adventure game. And instead of having an isometric view, you stuck the camera a little bit closer to pit. You could take a lot of what made Hades amazing and transplant it almost verbatim in terms of the code into a Kid Icarus game. And I think a lot of people would very much appreciate that. Yeah. And I mean, like the tone would obviously be very different. It would be a little more, you know, lighthearted and stuff like this, but I think that would be a really cool challenge for Supergiant. I would I would really like to see them tackle an IP like that. And I think they would find that challenge to be fun too. And man, I'm just like, I'm envisioning like Darren Korb's music in Kid Icarus, Gen Z's art representing some of these characters. Oh, it just like, it almost brings a tear to my eye. It would be so cool. Now of all the collaborations, of all the dream collaborations that we're going to be talking about, I would almost say that this would probably be the most likely to happen because coming off of Hades, coming off of many people's game of the year for 2020 or runner-up game of the year for 2020, been given countless accolades for so many facets of its game design. Supergiant, it would not surprise me if they started moving into, into something just like that, into taking not necessarily defunct, but taking on intellectual game properties from major game publishers and studios and reviving them because they have the pedigree. Now they have the skills, they have the awards. Yeah. It, it would not surprise me at all. If super giant for a while, at least decided to say, Hey, we're done with original IPs for a while. There's a lot of really good IPs out there that deserve a new fantastic game. And if anybody wants one made, give us a call. I can absolutely see that happening. Maybe Doug Bowser's sliding into the DMS a little bit, you know, maybe he's <laughs> trying to <laughs> figure that out. That'd be really cool. I don't know. I, I would love to talk to them about that. I mean, I mean, Hey, super giant. If anybody from the team happens to be listening, the invitation is always open. We would love to talk to you about that, but uh, yeah, no, I just, I would love to see them tackle kid Icarus. It just, it, it, again, chef's kiss. Or you could just port Kid Icarus Uprising to the Nintendo Switch. Yes, I, please and yeah. thank you. Yeah, I'll take that too. <laughs> I'll I take whatever too. I can get. 
But going into my number three, another independent video game studio that I am a huge, huge fan of is Playtonic. Mm-hmm. Big fan of ukulele, uh, big fan of ukulele and the impossible lair, 3D platformer, 2D platformer, and of course, a lot of the people who used to work at Rare, a game studio of some repute from back in the day. But there's so much experience there when you have 3D adventure style games, and there's plenty of collectathons out there. I wouldn't want them to work on another collectathon. There is a 3D adventure Nintendo franchise out there that would greatly benefit from a new title. I would love to see what Playtonic could do with Chibi Robo. Ooh, I love me some Chibi Robo. Yeah, Chibi Robo from the GameCube was an absolute cult classic, a really interesting, really unique 3D adventure title that saw you playing as Chibi Robo running around a house and trying to basically just do various tasks. You were essentially this little worker robot for this little family and you had this plug that you had to make sure you were plugged in so you could get power. It was almost like a much more kid-friendly version of the countdown timer from Minute, but it was just a really fun, really vibrant 3D adventure title. And I look at something like Ukulele and I think, man, Playtonic would be a great studio to revive Chibi Robo. A perfect pick, in my opinion, to revive Chibi Robo. They also had Ziplash, Chibi Robo Ziplash on the 3DS, which essentially just kind of came and went. Most people just yeah. bought it for the Amiibo. <laughs> yeah, the, I, I feel personally attacked by that statement, sir. I know. I, <laughs> I may have done the same thing. It was kind of, it was not that great. We don't talk yeah. about that. But it's Ziplash specifically that really makes me think that Playtonic is the right studio for this because in the Chibi Robo franchise, you have a 3D action adventure game and you have a 2D platformer style adventure game and you have a studio in Playtonic that has found success with one franchise with both of those genres. Right. So, so I, that's why I think that Playtonic would be the studio to revive Chibi Robo if Nintendo ever had the inkling to do that. I would love to see that happen. I, I love Chibi Robo. There's a certain heart to Chibi Robo that, that is so important to maintain. And there's just something about, and, and you know, Playtonic is no stranger to making really charming characters. And, and I mean, they, again, the, the rare history, I mean, they're well known for this kind of stuff. And I mean, look, they've proven they know how to make some good games. I, and I would just, I would love to see Chibi Robo come back in really any capacity, but Playtonic would be a really nice home for it. And with Playtonic really expanding their capabilities, they're publishing now. They've just, uh, in the past couple months, launched their Playtonic Friends uh, right. platform. So they're, they're doing more and more now. They're growing and growing. So uh, again, I, I know that's a long shot. I know it's a pipe dream, but... We can still hope. It'd still be really nice to see a, a deeper collaboration, a deeper partnership between Nintendo and Playtonic. And I don't know, maybe one day that could be on the cards. I'd love to see it. Coming into my number two, I have got, uh, you know, again, how can we not have WayForward represented mm. uh, here on our list? We love WayForward so much. And, you know, I, I just, I, I know we've already talked about WayForward, but I have to give my WayForward game now. Because mm. my number two, I would love to see WayForward tackle the Wario Land 
series. Oh. Yeah, Wario Land has been a series that has been dormant since 2008 with Wario Land Shake It on the Wii being the last... uh, Yeah, it was. It was a really good game. Kind of a 2D platformer. And again, it's got that hand-drawn aesthetic that WayForward is so known for. And I would really love to see them tackle... I mean, it does remind you a little bit of Shantae. It's not quite a Metroidvania, but you can kind of see a little bit of connective tissue that uh, between those games. And like, I don't know, like I could just so clearly picture it in my head way forward, tackling this character, especially with the animated cutscenes that were in Wario land. Shake it. <laughs> I, I would love to see way forwards take on that. I would love to see them bring back my girl, captain syrup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would just, it, it, it almost like it, you look at captain syrup's design, even and she almost looks like she would be right at home in a Shantae game. I mean, it really feels it feels like something that I, I could really kind of clearly envision happening. Um, and again, just a, a really tight platformer starring Wario. We haven't seen him in a starring role in so long. The Wario Land series is a kind of criminally, you know, left on the, you know, kind of left high and dry series for Nintendo. And I, I would love to see it come back from our friends at way forward. I could definitely see that Wario land shake. It was essentially a playable cartoon. It was a really solid little 2d platformer had a weird gimmick with having to go back to the beginning of the level. Once you complete the objective, but still I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And Wario definitely had all of his weird greedy moves on display. Yeah, I could see that (laughs) way forward. Doug Bowser, make it happen while you're at it. Do legendary Starfy, please. There you go. Boom, boom. Legendary Starfeed, new Wario Land game. Let's make it happen. <laughs> crossover with Wario, Shantae, and Legendary Starfeed. The crossover we never knew we needed. <laughs> I'll take it. But going into my number two, there was another reason, another recent occurrence that really put this idea of dream collaborations back into my mind specifically. And even though this studio, let's just call them a studio, They've never released a game for purchase. However, they have released playable video game content, so they qualify as far as I'm concerned. Mm. I really think Nintendo should just give the reins to 2D Metroid to Project SCU. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Last week, we reported on the Metroid Prime 2D fan remake, and... Again, if you haven't seen the trailer for it, if you haven't checked it out, it is fantastic. It looks absolutely amazing. From the scan mechanics in Metroid Prime to Samus's very precise aiming with her arm cannon to the atmosphere and the pixel art, the Metroid Prime 2D fan remake just looks like it's firing on all cylinders. And last week, I don't know if it's been taken down yet, but at Project SCU did finally release a demo of the project. Uh, Man, just give it to them, Nintendo. Honestly, we have needed a 2D Metroidvania Metroid game for so long. And if I got that, if I just got that, like not even a new Metroid game, if they just got to finish that Metroid Prime, the Metroidvania style Metroid Prime remake, I would give you all the money for that. We, We talked about that last week when we reported on the story, but I mean... This is the kind of thing where 
the 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 big brain move here from Nintendo would be to see something like this, and again, it's like, hey, you're infringing on our copyright. We have to take it down or whatever. But we are going to hire you to make the next one. <laughs> you know, yes. I mean, that's like that is exactly what you need to do in this kind of scenario because you're right. Seeing what that team did with Metroid Prime in 2D with the gorgeous music and pixel art, I mean, it, it's just stunning. They did a stunning job. And, and I mean, yeah, this is clearly a talented group of individuals who need to be working on the next Metroid, for sure. That's one heck of a resume that they've programmed, and I really think Nintendo should take notice. So, yes, please, and thank you to that. And before we get into the test number one, I did just have a couple honorable mentions real quick. It's not necessarily a Nintendo game, but I would really like to see Eric Barone of Stardew Valley fame do a Harvest Moon slash Story of Seasons game. Mm. I think that just makes way too much sense. Again, didn't put it on my list proper because Nintendo doesn't really own the rights to it. It's not a Nintendo IP, but again, you look at the the you look at the pedigree there with Eric Barone and having him work on a more marquee technically franchise or a game that used to be more marquee. Then Story of Seasons, yeah. Harvest Moon, Stardew Valley has effectively taken over the I was the, gonna say the throne from Harvest Moon. So if yeah. I think Natsume or somebody owns the rights to to Harvest Moon, but I think that's right. They should throw a ton of money at Eric Barone and have them work on their next game with him. But in the realm of actual Nintendo IPs, an, an old favorite for me when it comes to independent developers and this is one that didn't really make the list because in terms of viability i don't even know like this is probably the least viable thing i can imagine (laughs) but going back to my xbox 360 days i really loved twisted pixel they did some really really good games with the explosion man franchise explosion man miss explosion man comic jumper a really cool quirky fun 3d action adventure game called the maw and Considering their sense of humor and considering their visual flair and considering the pedigree of the studio, I don't know. I just think it'd be really interesting to see what their take on a Luigi's Mansion game would look like. Ooh, that'd be interesting. I would love to see that. That'd be really cool. Again, the really weird, kid-friendly, but still kind of morbid, offbeat sense of humor that Twisted Pixel has, I think it would fit in perfectly. The visual style, the kind of cartoonish visual style that Twisted Pixel had with those old games in the 360, I think would fit perfectly for Luigi's Mansion. So again, I know it's probably non-viable to the point of why even bring it up, but I look back at those old Xbox 360 indie games And I just think that would be a really cool thing to see a timeline in which Twisted Pixel got to make a Luigi's Mansion game. Twisted Pixel was a really cool dev back then. Those are some really great string of games there. And now they they got bought by Microsoft in 2011. They separated and became fully indie again back in 2015. And now they're just kind of making Oculus games. So it'd be cool to see them kind of make a, a kind of more marquee title again. I would love to see Twisted Pixel come back. But getting into my number one, I I teased it earlier. I got to bring up Star Fox. (laughs) (laughs) This is a game that I have had in my mind for a while now. One of those, again, these are the pie in the sky dream collaborations between independent developers. 
and Nintendo IP and just the the game that I keep coming back to into my head. And it's actually, we're probably kind of on the same wavelength here because it wouldn't be all that dissimilar from Star Fox by way of Sayonara Wild Hearts. I would love to see Star Fox be taken on by Enhance, which is Tetsuya Mizuguchi's studio, the, the res guy, basically. Um, I love... Mizuguchi's games. Uh, I've, I've been a fan of his for years. He is kind of most known for his work with Sega on games like Res, Space Channel 5. Uh, he created Luminous. Um, he you know, was behind Child of Eden and most recently Tetris Effect, which is my favorite version of Tetris. And it's good. really good. Please bring that to the Switch. That would no be kidding. incredible. But, but I just, I love all of his games and he's got this way of interweaving music with story. He's got this way of being able to tell a story through the music of the game and through the visuals of the game. And he's always, 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 always been so great about that. And his games have really resonated with me for like 20 years now, just because of that flair that he brings to all of his titles. And I would love to see him take on Star Fox. I think it would be such a unique Star Fox experience. You, you know, you play something like Res, and it's not super dissimilar from Star Fox. It is kind of that almost on rails, you know, shooter, and it's all to the beat of a of, of music, of course. And but I mean, I could just really see a full Star Fox experience helmed by this guy. You know, especially, you know, Star Fox has got some great music throughout the series, but I could really see him taking it to the next level. Um, I just, I, I've been envisioning this game. It's kind of as a video game music fan, as a fan of his style of games and his style of music, to see him married with an IP like Star Fox would be an absolute dream come true. And ever since I first had the idea, I have not been able to get it to leave my head. So my number one, Star Fox by Tetsuya Mizuguchi's Enhanced Studios. Yeah, Seth is a huge fan of music-based games. Go figure. Yeah, go figure. Surprise, yeah. surprise. Well, for my number one, we talked about how Supergiant may be the most viable in terms of Nintendo getting to work with one of their intellectual properties. But when it comes to my number one, it's my number one because it just makes way too much sense. It makes so much sense that I guarantee you, Seth, the second I name the developer, you'll probably know exactly what IP I'm talking about. Okay. I really hope this happens. I really do, because this developer has under their belt what might be the poster child right now for independent games. It's one of the most legendary indie games ever released, and it was based very heavily on a Nintendo IP. I would mm. love to see what Toby Fox yep. could do with, what is it, Seth? Earthbound. You're darn right. Yeah. Again, it just makes so much sense that the second I said Toby Fox's name, you knew exactly what Nintendo IP I was talking about. And I mean, talk about a series that people want to see come back. I mean, Toby Fox has played Smash Brothers with Sakurai at his house. <laughs> the relationship is there. Sans is in Smash. Exactly. Sans is in Super Smash Brothers. Megalovania is on my music player in Smash. 
And Undertale is again one of the most legendary indie games ever released. And and I know Toby Fox is working on Deltarune, but if Nintendo said, hey, Toby Fox, we want you to be the game director for a new Earthbound, how quickly do you think it would take Toby Fox to say yes? I mean, that's got to be a, the dream project for him. And you could argue, like, some somebody's probably listening to this being like, well, Undertale is Toby Fox's Earthbound, but no, there's something different about getting to work with the IP and, you know, properly. And taking nothing away, Undertale is always going to be its own game. It's always going to stand apart from Earthbound. But I I think Toby Fox, given his mentality, given his uh, philosophy for game design, he would be the best person on the planet right now to bring back Earthbound. There's been a lot of really good uh, RPG maker style RPGs that have released. I'm actually really interested in the RPG maker community. Games like Amori, which I cannot wait for coming out soon, and a bunch of other games in the RPG community. Uh, Games like this, that is kind of... Earthbound is essentially kind of the grandfather of all those. Right. And... Again, Toby Fox would be the perfect person to finally bring back the Mother franchise, to finally give us a new Earthbound. Because kind of like Star Tropics, Earthbound has really ascended cult classic status. It's no longer a cult classic. It's this legendary title. Now, granted, yes, due in large part to Super Smash Brothers and Ness's and Lucas's inclusion on the roster, but... Even before that, copies of Earthbound were going for hundreds of dollars. The game had garnered that much of a reputation. It's time to finally bring it back. And there's nobody on the planet better suited for it than Mr. Fox. Earthbound is such a special, special game. And of course, there's been an absolute fervor in the Nintendo fan base for forever now to bring mother three over and to give an official translation. And I still really do think that could happen one day, but there's just like, there's something different about having a brand new earthbound game helmed by, I mean, like you said, there's probably no other person alive right now that is more well-suited to tackle a new earthbound game. So yeah, I, I hope that Doug Bowser again, good friend of the show listening right now, please Say fuzzy pickles to Toby Fox. (laughs) (laughs) What about you guys? Who do you guys think would be the best person to take on Star Fox? Which IP do you think Way Forward should take on? And what other dream Nintendo slash indie developer collaborations would you like to see? Please do reach out to us on Twitter and Facebook. This is a topic... uh, that is so rife with potentially amazing ideas. We would absolutely love to see what you guys think about it. Now, it's been a couple weeks coming, but a few weeks ago, Monster Hunter Rise was released mm-hmm. on the world. And we have been diligently hunting every Great Azuchi to every Somnican <laughs> to every Magnamalo and Rathalos and Zenogre and pukey pukey that we could possibly find. We have ventured to every corner of Kimura Village, and we are finally now bringing you our full review of Monster Hunter Rise.
yes, it is finally time for us to talk Monster Hunter Rise. Going from the, you know, talking about indie games to the the list of A's <laughs> here with uh, what is undoubtedly going to be one of the biggest Nintendo Switch releases of the year, and I'm really stoked to talk about it. Before we get into it, though, as always, we like to issue a disclaimer for the way that we handle our reviews here on All In. We do not subscribe to a typical number score. We are of the opinion that video games are more complicated and mean so many things to so many different people that we don't want to just distill them down to a number score. Sorry, Metacritic. But uh, I'm really excited to talk about this game, and I think this is going to be an interesting review because this is kind of your first real foray into the series, right? Yes, I've dipped my toe. I think I've used this metaphor before, but I've dipped my toe a couple times before into the pool that was Monster Hunter, and I found it to be a little bit too brisk for me at the time. However, mm-hmm. I just all the marketing, everything that they were showing off about Monster Hunter Rise, especially with everything that they were adding, which we will definitely get into, I, I just couldn't help myself. It just started to look more and more amazing, despite the fact that I kind of knew how I felt about Monster Hunter when they showed off certain aspects of the gameplay and a lot of the new designs. I just couldn't help myself. I was like, I, you know what? You got me, Capcom. I'm hype. I need this game now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for my part, I, like you, I kind of dipped my toe into Monster Hunter over the years. But the first one that really got me was World. And I think that's the story with a lot of people. I spent like north of 100 hours with World, which is, you know, pales in comparison to what some people spent with it. But I I spent quite a bit of time with World. And so when Rise came out, uh, that was definitely a uh, one of my most anticipated games of the year. And and I got to say, man, Just right off the top, we're going to get into all the individual elements of the game and review it in full, of course, but I'm really, really satisfied with this game. I am too, and I'm really interested to see how this review goes, because this is kind of going to be a flip-flop of our Retromania wrestling discussion from last week, where I, me being the seasoned wrestling mark and you being the kind of wrestling noob, now the roles are reversed, me being very much the monster hunter, you know, newcomer and you having, I mean, granted, yes, world was just, was your first one, but you're still a lot more versed in the ways of monster hunting than I was just a couple months ago. Yeah, that's definitely fair to say. I mean, it's, uh, it's a series that is, is really unique and really special, I think. And I I think when it comes to our reviews, we typically start by talking about the game's story Uh, We will then go into the presentation, the music, and of course, culminating in the gameplay, which is the most important part of any video game. But um, to start us off with the story, the kind of story setup of this game, you know, Monster Hunter is not a series that is well known for its riveting plot. Um, it's, It's very much kind of a means to an end. The story of Monster Hunter games is very much a setup to introduce the monsters that you will be hunting. And this game is no different. Basically, the setup is that it takes place in Kamura Village, which is this kind of feudal Japanese village um, that is you know, home to this hunter's guild. And essentially, you are promoted to a hunter, your character, after you go into the like really deep character creation, which is, which is really cool. Um, your character is promoted to a hunter, by the Wyverian twins Hinoa and Minoto. And 
it isn't long before the uh, the kind of village elder, the leader Fugen, notices signs of a calamity event called the Rampage that kind of has a horde of monsters that attacks the village in a frenzied state that happens every 50 years or so. And basically the story premise is find out what, you know, what is causing the rampage and hunt a whole bunch of monsters in between. And that's basically what you do is you just hunt a whole bunch of monsters. And it's interesting because Monster Hunter is a 3D action adventure RPG. And for the most part, Narratives are fairly important elements of games like that. Obviously, we talk a lot about uh, a bunch of first-party Nintendo titles. Mario games don't really have a strong narrative. A lot of first-party Nintendo games don't really have a strong narrative. But when it comes to big action-adventure RPGs like this, typically, especially now, when you have AAA uh, entries in the series, it is kind of weird to see that Monster Hunter is still a little lax, a little light on on the deep narrative. Basically, yeah. just like you said, the narrative only being a means to an end, essentially just serving as the motivation to play the game. Right. And, and I will say, this game does do something that is quite interesting in the structure of its missions, because this is a very mission-based RPG. It mm-hmm. is all about setting up hunts, going on you know specific hunts, and, and working your way through this game's set of hunting missions. And the way they differentiate these is by two sets of quests. There are village quests, and then there is a gathering hub, which has its own set of hub quests. And at first glance, what we sort of were thinking was that just the way that the game was differentiating them was, okay, village quests are what you do in single player, because you yep. cannot do village quests in multiplayer. And then hub quests are kind of specifically for multiplayer. But as it turns out, the game actually segments its story pretty significantly between the two. You can see the credits, literally the credits of the game by doing simply the village quests. But there is much, much more story. Kind of the true story lies in the hub quests. And I thought that was a really weird decision. And I'm not 100% sure if it was a good one. The village quests essentially serve as kind of a single player campaign where you have your own buddies that you can play through the quote unquote story with. And you do get, like Seth said, a little bit of what's going on in Kimura Village. However, the multiplayer, the co-op campaign, as it were, is where, yeah, I think you're going to find a lot more of the meat of what's going on, such as, you know, the meat that's really there. We're talking about... You know, chicken drumsticks. We're not necessarily talking about, (laughs) you know, T-bone steaks here in terms of the narrative offering. Sure. But you do get a little bit more meat from the hub quest than you do from the village quest. And it's it's really interesting because when it comes to these reviews, any game that we review here on the show, and this is something that I've told Seth and he can vouch for, I'm kind of a stickler about seeing the game's credits. I really Mm -hmm. like to see the game's credits roll before I feel comfortable saying, okay, I can review this game and give my opinion to other people. Maybe more so than any other game on the Switch. If you don't really mess with the hub quest too much, if you just play through the village quests, maybe more so than any other game on the Switch. There is definitely a feeling of there is so much more to this package when you hit the credits in the village quest campaign. 
yeah, there's, there's actually quite a bit more to it in the hub quest. And like, there are probably six or seven monsters that you straight up will not see in the village quests. They're only available in the high rank, the high hunter rank hub quests. And I just thought that was such a weird, interesting decision. I don't know if I necessarily like it because there are going to be people who play this game. And yes, I'm, I'm not saying that you can't have a totally good experience with this game story, just playing in single player. But when you're talking about like, and I did do a large portion of the hub quest by myself. And, and that's something that's viable that you can do. I don't want to discourage you guys from tackling these, these things solo, but once you get into the like really high rank, the six, seven star bracket of the high rank hub quests, like it's the kind of thing that's going to be really tough to do by yourself. And I just found it really interesting and kind of bizarre that they chose to segment the story in that way and, and put such a significant amount of content behind something that is tuned for multiplayer that not everybody will get to experience. That is interesting. And again, I'd, it's a weird decision. I would like to see in future installments, I think a little bit more of a collective campaign Mm -hmm. maybe you have a single narrative story progression but those missions could maybe have either single player or multiplayer you know levels of difficulty because especially when it comes to the village quests the the way they just kind of threw in the credits there at the end of so many missions felt almost arbitrary so a little anticlimactic almost Yeah, you get to the mission and you know it's kind of the last mission before the credits, but it just kind of shows up in the Village Quest the first time you see it. So, yeah, the structure, it's not going to matter a lot to a lot of people, but the structure, when you take a look at it, when you look beneath the surface, is a little weird and it is a little awkward. Yeah, and another thing I just want to quickly mention before we move on is the fact that the story even if you do everything in the game, even if you see all of those, you know, all of that story through in both the village and the hub quests, the story is actually not finished yet. Capcom has already promised a lot. And and we saw this with world and they're going to do it again with rise a ton of post launch DLC, including the kind of quote unquote true ending that is teased at the end of what we have in the vanilla game. We, we will be seeing that as downloadable content, which is similar to what they did with Monster Hunter World. So it is worth noting that the, the story itself is actually not complete in the vanilla version of the game. It comes to a satisfying enough ending. Um, it does, again, tease what's coming, though. And, and you do get the sense of like, okay, there, there's there's quite a bit more here. And, and that's something that I think is... Another weird, interesting decision, but at least you have the knowledge that they are going to be supporting this game really consistently. As a matter of fact, we should get a downloadable content drop in just a couple weeks. Yeah, they showed off Camellios, the returning Wyvern, in a lot of the game's presentations over the past couple months leading up to the launch of Monster Hunter Rise. And just Mm -hmm. this past week, we got a look at the Apex Rathalos, that terrifying brimstone-looking variant of the iconic monster hunter beast so i'm really looking forward to a lot of the stuff that that there is down the line because there's already so much here in monster hunter and knowing that they're going to support the game very similarly to how they did with monster hunter world makes me very excited to see what the future of rise has in store so yeah i guess just kind of my final thoughts on the story it's you know it 
it, it's there. It, it's a means to an end. I, I enjoyed it. I have my misgivings with the way they structured it by splitting it between those two sets of quests. Um, but overall, I, I thought it does a it, it does a solid job of of doing what it needs to do, and I'm really glad that we are poised for hopefully a long time to come of DLC support to expand on it. I don't think we're going to get a ton of extra lore. This doesn't strike me as the type of game that's going to automatically get narratively deep with DLC, but Mm -hmm. I did appreciate the injection of the occasional injection of personality into, into the game through the characters and through what little story there was, because a lot of the characters in the game, the game's personality is kind of extra anime. And when I say extra anime, I mean like, you know, (laughs) you know how people, are described to be extra sometimes. That's sure. basically what we're talking about. A lot of these characters, a lot of these exaggerated anime style motions, and you do see that quite a bit in the story mode. The the super exaggerated expressions and the gestures and the uh, the themes are just a half step above. You know, the friendship we were looking. You know, the friendship we were looking for was there the whole time. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, so, that kind of shonen anime trope. And it's got, you know, it's because the setting is Japanese, you're going to get a lot of that inherently too. You know, the the food in this game is like Dongo and stuff and there are ninjas and, you know, it's it's very, it wears that on its sleeve. Yeah, the, the story and the lore behind Monster Hunter, this is just something I'm now finding out and from the videos that I did see on Monster Hunter World, but the personality and the narrative and the lore behind Monster Hunter is you know, very kind of cartoonish, despite the somewhat, Mm -hmm. somewhat pseudo photorealistic visuals of the game. Uh, The the game's characters very often act like cartoon characters in a lot of respects, especially when you're talking about like the gestures and the emotes and the poses that you can do. So it's, (laughs) it's just that type of game folks. And I think that's a pretty good segue to start talking about the game's presentation to talk about, both it's it's kind of like visual style, the things they do with this game artistically, and also it's technical performance. And that's something that I want to shout out really specifically here because I was really impressed with the way this game performs on Switch. I mean, we know that the Switch is not... It's not the PS5 or the Xbox no. Series X. It's, it's not this powerhouse machine. It's a portable machine after all. But with this RE engine that Capcom has developed. I mean, it is one of the most impressive Switch games that I, I think is out there today, just in terms of technical performance. I mean, the game looks really good graphically. It runs really, really smoothly, and they have a really solid uh, online netcode to boot, which is really important for this game. Yeah, specifically from a performance standpoint, Seth and I played quite a bit of this game together in preparation for this review, we played through mm-hmm. a couple dozen different monster hunts and we really didn't notice the entire time that we were playing this game. We didn't notice any notable lag or frame drop the entire time we were right. playing, which I thought was really impressive, especially for a new game, because typically it does take a little while for the servers to settle in, especially when you're talking about a game that shipped 4 million units in its first weekend on a single system. So I'm very surprised. Granted, yes, I know it's Capcom and they have servers for days, but I was still expecting a little bit of a hiccup in the first week or so coming out the gate, but that did not happen with Monster Hunter Rise. We're talking about a 
among the best internet connections you're probably going to see on the system, rivaling Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, in my opinion. So from a performance yeah. standpoint, it works incredibly well. From a presentation standpoint, yeah, I agree with you. I think the game looks really, really good. Again, caveat, it's not the PlayStation 5 or the Xbox Series X. So you may be able to, if you're really looking at it with a microscope, you'll probably be able to start poking holes in it. And yes, again, because of performance and because because the game optimizes that performance, if you look off into the distance, yes, admittedly, you will see some, some uh, let's just say some 15 FPS Remobras firing around <laughs> or, you know, you may see some, some elements off in the distance that, sure. you know, may not be running as smoothly as the ones that are right next to you because of the Switch's hardware. But I, I mean, if you want to poke holes in it, sure. Yes. This game doesn't look as good as it would have on the PS5 or Xbox Series X, but it does look really good. It does bring up an interesting point of, how in the world Nintendo got this as an exclusive for any length of time. Because as much as we love the Switch, that blows my mind. When you have a game that was such a juggernaut like Monster Hunter World that became far and away Capcom's best-selling game, it really is surprising. As much as we love Nintendo, that they decided their follow-up to Monster Hunter World was going to be a Nintendo Switch exclusive for a considerable period of time. So we're happy with it. We got a fantastic Monster Hunter game out of it but I, I mean the fact that this didn't show up on the playstation 5 and xbox series x was a bold move cotton yeah and we i mean look to follow to follow through the rest of that quote we see how that strategy played out <laughs> um <laughs> it definitely uh it definitely has paid off for them just again like you like you touched on um it's actually since since then since its first weekend it's sold over five million units now worldwide so i mean this this game is going to go on to to sell many 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 copies and i think the the big takeaway from a visual fidelity standpoint is that and and i said this when we talked about the game's demo when we played that you know way back when when they first revealed that um it it looks like when i when i'm playing monster hunter rise i don't have the thought in my head like oh this looks like notably worse than Monster Hunter World. Now, if you look at the game side by side, yes, Monster Hunter World looks a little bit better. But the way that they managed to capture the kind of essence of Monster Hunter in this game is really impressive. And I want to shout out to specifically the load times in this game. It's like crazy. They actually, like the, the loads going into hunts and the initial load of the game is maybe, I don't know, 10 seconds or something. But when you're like moving around Kamura Village, you can actually kind of like fast travel and pop around the village. It's instant. It's like literally instant. And I, I just, you know, I, I, I call back to an old Call of Duty 4 review that G4 did. Uh, and Adam Sessler said, like, I don't know what black magic they did to get Call of Duty 4 looking and running so well on the Xbox 360. That's how I feel about Monster Hunter Rise. I don't know what kind of black magic they they had to perform to get this game looking and running so well on the Nintendo Switch. It's really impressive. That's those those 15 FPS Remobras. That's the sacrifice <laughs> they had to make. Yeah. Their sacrifice was not in vain. And then and then also like from an, an art style perspective, yes. this game features some of the prettiest like environmental art that I've seen on the Switch. It features like some really great monster design. Um, you specifically shouted out the 
armor in the game is like some of the coolest armor in any game ever. Yeah, I, we can talk about performance all the live long day, but when we're talking about presentation, yes, performance doesn't mean anything if the game is trash design-wise, and that's definitely not the case here. I, again, had seen images and I'd seen videos of Monster Hunter, but I really didn't know the depth of the design philosophy and Monster Hunter really until I put a lot of time into Monster Hunter Rise. The Just like you said, yeah, the monster designs are amazing. They are so, so yeah. cool. And they are varied. A lot of the monsters, yes, you'll have a lot of similar body style monsters. You'll have a lot, you'll have a lot of Wyvern-esque monsters, but there are a ton of very unique monster designs in here, like the Bishatin or the Rachnikadaki or the Great Azuchi or the Zenogre. There's a lot of really interesting, really unique looking monsters. That and even those designs play into a lot of the strategies. But even beyond the monster designs themselves, one of the biggest things about any RPG style game is the equipment, your weapons mm-hmm. and your armor. And As many monsters are in this game, every single one of them, to include the smaller monsters, to include many of the smaller monsters in the game that don't really take center stage for any of the mission hunts, they all have their own equipment. They all have their own full sets of armor that you can craft, and they each have their own weapon designs. And for the weapons, don't forget, this is a game that has over a dozen different types of weapon styles. So the amount of equipment in this game is staggering. And just from a presentation standpoint, a lot of it looks so cool. These armor sets, these weapons look boss. They look yeah. amazing. They are designed incredibly well to the point where you want to get them just because of how cool they look. There were times where I replayed the same mission five or six times in a row just to get enough materials from a monster to make sure I got that full monster set of armor. I did that probably seven times just throughout the course of me playing the the mission mode. I did it for the Great Azuchi. I did it for the Aknosum. I did it for the Tetranodon. Most recently, I did it for the Rathalos. The mm-hmm. Rathalos armor looks amazing. I have this awesome sword and shield right now with uh, this kind of flaming lava short sword. Oh my God. The armor and the equipment in this game looks so, so cool. Now, this is something you pointed out, Seth, but... In addition to equipment for yourself, you can also get equipment for your buddies. And we will talk more about the buddies in the gameplay. But yes, when you have yourself and both of your buddies running around with you, the the over-designed nature of a lot of the equipment can start to shine through a little bit. When you have three right. characters all rocking similar sets of armor, you're just like, wow, that's a lot of spikes. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of bones and flames. Yeah, I mean, it's cool though. There are a lot of people, and I feel like this is a bit of a um, a bit of a response to a lot of the criticism they got with some of the armor and weapon designs in World, specifically the weapon designs. A lot of diehard Monster Hunter fans complained that the weapon designs in World was kind of just like, let's take this weapon and slap some monster parts onto it. They they definitely made it a lot more interesting. The designs in this one are really good, and and like. The monsters themselves, again, there are quite a, a a bit less in this game in terms of the returning and new large monsters. There's nine 
brand new large monsters specifically for this game uh, for a total of 35, which is about half as many as we got with Monster Hunter World. However, it is all killer, no filler. They really, really have a great selection of monsters here. And I really think that, you know, in so many previous Monster Hunter games, we got like six different kinds of Rathalos, <laughs> you know, to just kind of like bump up that that monster count. They really nailed like the the visual design of all of these like new and returning monsters. And again, to touch on the DLC thing, I'm sure this number is probably going to double over the length of this game's life. So there's just this game visually is kind of a treat from everything from the monster designs to the armor and weapon designs to the environmental detail. Again, we've got these like this feudal Japanese vibe with Kimura village and all of its cherry blossoms. And we've got like the various locales, like the beautiful shrine ruins and the flooded forest and the, the dunes of the Sandy Plains. I mean, you know, the frost islands with that cool, like shipwreck. Yeah. Not the best named environments, but very well designed environments. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really, really pretty to look at. I, I really like this game visually a lot. Yeah, and specifically talking about Kimura Village, it's among my favorite hub areas in video games right now. The The village itself is just really pretty to look at. And there's several different areas of the village. You've got your town square, essentially, with your shop and Fugin the Elder just hanging out. Mm-hmm. You've got your Bunny Dongo stall. And then you have, off to the side, you have this, like encased wooded grove where a lot of the buddy actions take place where you can send out your meow scenarios as they're called and have your buddies train and then you have the actual training area and then you have the docks down by Kimura village it's relatively contained all things considered but it's just a really beautiful style hub area especially when you look at the waterfalls off in the distance it's a great respite from the terrifying often monsters that you're going to face so you finish up the hunt and you go back to the safety of Kimura village where it's incredibly chill and you feel like you're just allowed to take a nice breath and it's very conducive to oh things are okay now yeah it's got that nice like the the maiden singing and the the cool, like, I don't know, it just has this nice tranquil kind of vibe to it. Yeah, and I think the singing is a, a good segue because there are some interesting things to talk about in terms of this game's music. Yes, there are. I I did quite a bit of research into this game's uh, music because it was really standout to me. And it, it sounded just, you know, way different from a lot of previous Monster Hunter games. And as it turns out, that's because they gave this game to a brand new composer by the name of Satoshi Hori. And he's a really fresh-faced new kind of composer at Capcom. This is actually only his third credit uh, working at Capcom. He is only previously, he was the composer of Resident Evil 7, and he was the lead composer of Ultra Street Fighter 2, The Final Challengers. And I, I just, to give like kind of a, to give new blood a series like Monster Hunter and Resident Evil, I think just speaks to how impressive this kind of young upcoming composer in Capcom is. And I got to say, there's a really good interview on Capcom Unity blog uh, that I'll put a link to in the episode description because you should, it's definitely worth the read. It's a really interesting interview with him. And like, 
he took such a unique approach to Monster Hunter Rise's soundtrack with all of these really unique, like ancient Japanese instruments that uh, that are incorporated into this game's sound. And he talks about how important it was to him to capture actual nature Foley sounds. There's an image in this interview where uh, he actually snapped a shot of them taking like Foley from the actual Japanese landscape. And uh, the, the music has this like choral element. He talks about how he wanted to add a, a 24 person chorus to all of the monster themes. And it gives it this epic, almost like similarly to what you would see in like a souls game. It gives it this just kind of more grand scale to all of the music in this game. So you've got the combination of like a 24 person choral orchestra, you know, the vocal music that goes along with that and some really ancient traditional Japanese instruments that you are not going to hear every day. And it really coalesces into, I think a really special soundtrack for this game. Well, in that interview, does he also talk about how it was great that he recently graduated from middle school? <laughs> he's he's uh, I don't know how old uh, Mr. Horty is, but he, there's a picture of him here in the interview and he, he, yeah, he's a young guy for sure. So I, I gotta say though, man, I like I'm just really impressed. I a I'm impressed by Capcom giving somebody like a fresh faced composer like this such a huge deal series and a huge deal game, and for him to be able to rise to that challenge. And it was it is really interesting. There are a couple standout moments of music in this game for me. One of them is the fact that, and this was something that we saw during the demo. When you get to the main title menu of Monster Hunter Rise, it features one of the Wyvernian maidens singing, like full on right. singing along with some of the music. And that itself was kind of striking. You know, full on vocal performances are still relatively uncommon when it comes to video game soundtracks. They're becoming slightly more common. Obviously, we had Life Light with uh, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. We had Jump Up Superstar with Super Mario Odyssey. But still, those are, you know, kind of the exceptions. But there are multiple sung tracks in Monster Hunter. Not only do you have the main title menu, but even as you're going through Kimura Village, you have one of the maidens singing, which it, in addition to the visuals, the beautiful vis uh, visuals of Kimura Village really helps put you at ease as well. And another one of the quick kind of standout musical moments for me in this game is, we probably should have mentioned this during the presentation part, but... One of the really cool detail-oriented pieces of flair they put into Monster Hunter Rise are, I don't know if these are in-world or previous Monster Hunter games. Again, I'm a noob. But the first time you hunt a monster in Monster Hunter Rise, you get this mm -hmm. weird Akira Kurosawa does Grindhouse-style cutscene that really you know, puts over the monster as a real threat that you're going to have to overcome. And again, it's like Akira Kurosawa does Grindhouse. It's these weird kind of grainy with film line uh, animated cutscenes that show the monster doing something monstrous. But the, the instruments and the music that they use in there, it's kind of like, what even is that instrument from old Japan? Is that, that's not a sitar, is it? Well, no, it's it's not a sitar. It's it's probably I'm not going to know the name of it, but it's it's going to be a similar kind of thing. Um, it, it's it's a string instrument that's kind of a similarly to a sitar or a lute 
that uh it, you know again is utilizing these ancient feudal japanese instruments um but yes it's got that kind of playing it's got like again more vocal singing introducing these monsters and while we've had cutscenes to introduce the new monsters in the past we've never had them introduced quite like this and i i also just really quickly before we move on wanted to shout out the uh the fact that, that you have so many different language options uh to play as in the game <laughs> and like the the vo performance in the game for me for the english uh dub was just a little uh a little too much the little, little you know, too extra a little too much. Uh, so for me, I chose to play the game, especially because it takes place and has so many Japanese themes. I did choose to play the game in the Japanese track, and I've been having a really good time with that. But the uh, the English dub, I'm not saying it's not like a viable way to play the game, but for me personally, it was a little much. Yeah, it can be a little cringy for people. Legitimately on the level of like, hey, Ace, how are things going? Hey there, champ. Yeah. <laughs> legitimately that level of of intentional cringe to go along with the games again like i mentioned very extra style over the top cartoonish personality the the vocal performances do fit in well with that but hearing english lines like that delivered like that uh, yeah I, I don't blame anybody for switching over to the japanese or even the monster hunter language because that's also right. an option as well Right. Yes. So really cool of them to, uh, to, to put that in the game. So, I mean, my overall impressions of the music in this game, I I'm so impressed with like some of these crazy old instruments that they implemented all of the environmental sound work that was done. Um, again, I, I just, I, I love the takes on these. I love the classic monster hunter themes that have been reworked with a full 24 person chorus, um, I, I just, it's, it's really standout work. And, and I really think I, I would be surprised if this is not one of my favorite scores of the entire year. But of course, the way that you always have to end a real review of any type of game, because any game can have an amazing story. It can look fantastic and it could have the soundtrack of the year. However, if the gameplay is not up to point, then it will rightfully crash and burn. So let's talk about the actual gameplay of Monster Hunter Rise. Now, like we mentioned at the top of the review, Monster Hunter Rise is a 3D action-adventure RPG that focuses on individual encounters with very large monsters. Again, it's kind of right there in the title. You hunting monsters across these different locales makes up the vast majority of the gameplay experience. So it makes sense that most of the gameplay wrinkles are kind of focused on layering that experience. And there are so many layers to that experience. Genuinely, we probably could have talked this entire episode about the gameplay of Monster Hunter Rise and still left a few things out. But let's try to get into it. Yeah, so the the basic you know setup of Monster Hunter's gameplay is... You fight monsters, you collect materials from the monsters that you hunt, and you use that material to upgrade your weapons and armor to take on bigger monsters and make better weapons and armor. I mean, that is the the gameplay loop, and that is the kind of addictive quality of Monster Hunter. And of course, like any good RPG, you're also going to be, you know, doing things like gathering and crafting and making your potions. And, you know, that they've they've got kind of the core of Monster Hunter 
really down pat at this point, but they've added quite a few new wrinkles to the gameplay that make Monster Hunter Rise stand out. It's man, it's so so cool. You we how often have we talked about monsters in reference to video games in general? When you're talking about mm-hmm. any RPGs or so many different action adventure games and so many different games in general, a lot of the things, a lot of the enemies that you'll be fighting have just been kind of pared down to quote unquote monsters. So we have faced millions of monsters at this point throughout our collective gaming careers. But there's something about the encounters in Monster Hunter that really seem to capture what that word really means. Now, you're not just running into seven of the same different enemy in an RPG as they sit there stagnantly waiting for you to kill them. No, these are living, breathing, horrifying creatures, these massive towering behemoths that, again, tower over you. And these encounters are so dynamic. It's not just something to where you walk up to them, you engage in a fight, and then you defeat them. There is so much strategy that you can employ. There are so many new elements that can insert themselves. There are so many different things that can happen throughout the course of these encounters. They feel so fluid and so organic. And a lot of the gameplay wrinkles basically are just there to serve as ways to make these encounters as interesting as possible and as customizable as possible. Yeah, I I wanted to ask you about this specifically as somebody who's new to the series because Monster Hunter, the word that I always go back to with Monster Hunter, especially the combat, is that it's deliberate. Yeah. It is not a, you know, it's not Hyrule Warriors. It's not this like button mashy, like fast paced. It is a slow, deliberate combat system. Again, across the game's like bevy of weapon styles, you do have some options that are a little bit faster. You can have things like the sword and shield and the dual blades that are obviously going to be faster than a hammer or a great sword. But even, even like considering that it is still, I think much more slow and deliberate and measured and considered than the average action RPG. And I was just curious because I, I remember when you played the demo that was a, a bit of a learning curve for you. So now now that you've spent a ton of time with this game, uh, where, where do you fall on that? Well, Hyrule Warriors is a really good comparison because the demo came out fairly soon after we had given you guys our thoughts on Hyrule Warriors. Do go back and check right. out that review discussion as well. And this was something that admittedly did keep me from the series for a while is because the combat is, I think deliberate is kind of the best word for it. In layman's terms, it's slower. In something like uh, a Hyrule Warriors or really most other games that have combat, you're talking, you hit the attack button and your attack comes out typically within a few frames. However, one of the few somewhat realistic aspects of Monster Hunter is if you have a massive hammer or if you have a massive greatsword, it takes you a second to wind that up and to swing it at your opponent. There are a couple, especially the heavier weapons, that could take upwards of a second or two to complete their full attack motion to where they can hit their opponent. And a lot of the enemies that you're going to face in the game aren't just going to sit there and let you hit them. Again, these are very dynamic encounters. So that much slower paced, that much more deliberate style of combat mixed with 
enemies that aren't just going to let you hurt them did initially frustrate me quite a bit when I tried it on Monster Hunter Try on the 3DS. And even, you know, before that, when I tried it on the PSP once, it's that slower, more deliberate style of combat that just turned me off. I was right. so I was so spoiled with faster uh, paced games that going to a game like Monster Hunter after playing all those games felt like I was, you know, I've, I must have felt like Sonic does when he has to play in a Mario <laughs> game, if that makes That's sense. Fair. That's kind of how I felt going to the combat in Monster Hunter. However, just like you mentioned, there are weapon styles that do offer quicker attacks and i'm actually currently using one of those i mentioned the sword and shield that's the one i'm using right now i also do have a long sword loadout i also do have a hammer loadout because i did as slow as it is i did come to appreciate how hard hitting that hammer can be as well right but i imagine i was in the same boat that a lot of people were in if it's been hard for you to get into monster hunter because of the combat I understand. I really do. And I know a lot of people groan when they hear something like, well, if you just do this, then everything will be fine. You know, a right. lot of people, you know, well, if you just make it to season five of this show that I love, then, then <laughs> right. it gets so much better. I know that's how it comes off. But genuinely, if you give the combat a chance, uh, and I'm saying this especially because there are now, like we've said, over a dozen different types of weapon styles in the game. So I promise if you sit down and mess with it a few minutes, you'll probably find a weapon style that you really like. If you're looking for something more fast paced, then yeah, something like the dual blades or the sword and the shield is probably going to be your go-to. If your focus is going to be on trying to incapacitate your opponent and just get in a few super hard hitting hits, then something like the great sword or the hammer might be something for you. And if you want to, you know, if you don't even want to get close to the monsters, you have multiple options for that. You've got bow guns and insect glaives. So with all the different styles in Monster Hunter, you do not have to stick with any one of them. You can switch to any one at any given time. And in fact, a lot of the monsters you are going to face, you may find that a different weapon would be a better idea against one of them. There are some monsters that are just incredibly fast to the point where you know don't even worry about a slower hard-hitting weapon just get in the attacks when you can and then you have monsters who are much slower something like the stone dragon baroth that is such a massive target and genuinely takes a while to to kind of right itself after an attack that if you bring a hammer to it you'll probably be able to knock the rocks right off of it so in addition to personal preference, even the, the different weapon styles can really play into the, the strategy. And I'm really glad I finally did give the Monster Hunter games a chance because as playing those old demos and having that slower, more deliberate combat style turned me off, I knew that after everything I saw with Monster Hunter Rise, I knew I was going to find something here that I really enjoyed. And I'm glad I finally took the plunge because I am absolutely loving this game in so many different respects and the different combat styles are just one one aspect of the depth of strategy that you can employ in monster hunter rise 
Yeah, and, and they did such a good job. You know, World was a, a really good entry point for a lot of people. I think World was the the game that kind of brought a lot of people in. It was the most welcoming to newcomers, and I think Rise is even more so because of some of the new additions they've made to the gameplay. And I think the biggest new addition, we're going to talk about several new additions they've made, but probably the biggest one is the wire bug, which has a lot of different applications. And it really makes the game a lot faster than it used to be. This game has got such a sense of not even just like traversal and like verticality, but like these wire bugs, which are essentially these bugs that can act as sort of an anchor point that you can use to fling yourself into the air or incorporate like an ultra powered switch skill. It's a Spider-Man mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of a Spider-Man mechanic. And like, in addition to that, it allows you to implement this thing called wirefall where a monster will knock you back and you can use your wirefall to get yourself right back into the fight and like just whip yourself right back towards the monster that just swatted you away. And I mean like that to me, there are a lot of people, especially diehard monster monster hunter fans that I'm seeing call this game quite a bit easier than past games. And I think that's just because of the additional options that the wire bug alone gives the player. Yeah, a lot of a lot has been made about the wire bug's movement capabilities just in terms of environment traversal. And when I when I said Spider-Man mechanic, I wasn't really joking. If you see the wire bug in action, it, that's honestly what it looks like because you assen- you essentially whip it through the air and then you pull yourself toward it. Right. Now you can use this to uh, slide across the ground really quickly, but most of the time you're going to use this to get to higher vantage points very quickly. If you see a ledge above you, then you can use your wire bug. You can whip it up there and uh, even run up the wall very briefly. Yeah, and it's a little interesting because it it looks so much like a Spider-Man movement pattern that I wanted to kind of default back to the Spider-Man ps4 game <laughs> so the, the the mechanic works very very differently in this game however once you get a handle on it it's incredibly rewarding because despite the fact you have somewhat limited resources when it comes to wire bugs you can't just use them constantly there is a bit of a limit there's yes. a gauge but once you really get a handle on the wire bug then it can offer you a ton of of movement options, both for environmental traversal and for the encounters. Because like Seth said, despite the fact that a lot has been made of the environmental traversal mechanics of the wire bug, that is not the only thing you do with the bug in the game. The wirefall specifically that Seth mentioned is essentially like a dodge roll that you can cancel getting hit. If you get knocked on your butt, then typically that's going to stun you for a couple seconds. And it may leave you very vulnerable and open to a follow-up attack. However, if you get knocked back by a monster, if you have a wire bug available, you can immediately roll out of being hit, completely cancel your stun animation, and roll right back into the monster. You can even attack mm-hmm. during that wirefall option. So if you there are so many times throughout the course of these monster hunts where I got knocked back by a monster and immediately wirefalled back into that monster, slashing them across the face and essentially reinitiating a combo. So uh, and even among that, 
there are extra options. Seth briefly mentioned the wirefall attacks. I was fairly surprised at how deep the individual attack combos went with a lot of the different weapon styles. Yeah. You have extra attacks and combos, and you have different ways that different weapons attacked, but they've added on to that with this game even more so. I don't know if they all do, but at least the vast majority of the weapons have specific new attacks that also use your wire bug gauge. Yes. And these are incredibly powerful extra attacks that you can use because, again, you're using up a consumable gauge. If you use those attacks, then you won't have a wire bug available to get out of the way of attacks. You don't have the wire fall ability that allows you to get back into the monster's face after being hit. You're using your wire bug gauge to perform an incredibly powerful attack. And a lot of them are incredibly satisfying to pull off. One of my favorite things about the combat in this game is some of the incredibly hype, absolutely (laughs) hype, satisfying moments in this game. And those wire bug attacks offer a ton of them. I mean, Seth, how many times uh, when you and I were hunting a monster, did I initiate a wire bug attack and just go, oh! <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so cool. And and there's kind of a delicate balance to the, the fact that the wire bug is a consumable. You will have two stock and then one of the kind of endemic life options that are essentially like a on-the-fly consumable and collectible difficulty slider. Like... there's these endemic life creatures and bugs that you can kind of pick up to give yourself perma buffs or temporary buffs for these missions. And like the wire bug is one of them because you have two stock and you can get an additional wire bug uh, if you find one in the world. And yeah, it's this delicate balance of choosing how to engage or not. Do I want to spend my wire bug charge on a wire fall to get myself back into the combat or do I want to be able to use my switch skill to pull off a super powerful, you know, hit or or what have you? Or do I want to use it for a traditional, you know, kind of more movement based attack? Um, it, it just there are so many more options in the combat in this one. I think that people find the game easier as a result. But but for me, it's a brilliant way of making the game so much more fast and snappy and just giving the player more power while not making the player feel too powerful. It's uh, it's a really delicate balance that they've pulled off here. And and I, I think the wire bug is such a brilliant addition. And speaking of hype moments, another function that the wire that the wire bug brings you is Wyvern writing. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, this is another brand new mechanic added to Monster Hunter. I can't believe it took them this long to ask this question. But finally, somebody at Capcom said to somebody throughout the development process, how about we let the players actually ride these monsters? Mm-hmm. Give that man a promotion. <laughs> it's so cool. It is so cool. Every monster in this game... Uh, is capable of allowing you to perform the wyvern writing mechanic. And within the context, within the narrative of the game, essentially how they describe you doing that is wrapping your wire bug around them to perform some kind of makeshift saddle or makeshift uh, bridle. And essentially what happens is at certain points, uh, a monster could get 
you know, kind of knocked out for a second. They could get staggered for a second in certain in certain situations. And right. if that happens, then if you go up to them, you have the ability to jump on their back, attach your wire bugs to them, and ride them and attack with them. And it is so hype and it is so boss. It is so cool. Let me just tell you about a couple really cool hype wyvern riding moments I have. Now, one of the things that you can do with the wyvern riding is uh, obviously a lot of the hype moments involve multiple monsters being on the map at once. Turf wars. Yeah, but there will be times when it's just your monster, when you're just fighting that and there are no other real monsters around. So the big thing about wyvern riding is being able to attack with the monsters. However, you can also have the monsters lunge forward knocking themselves silly by knocking them into walls or pillars or structures. So if you're just by yourself, then you can just jump on the back and ram this thing multiple times into, uh, again, a wall and do damage to them that way. And then you can use your wire bugs because your wire bugs immediately refill when you start a wyvern riding segment. Uh, You can have them recover and then jam them back into another wall and then have them recover and then jam them back into another wall before they fall to the ground, completely loop silly and allow you to perform some massive damage hit combos. So, but that's just when you're facing one monster. Let me tell you guys what happens when there are multiple monsters in play. My <laughs> word. Being able to attack as these monsters, we talk about the combat in Monster Hunter being slow and deliberate. The monster combat themselves, <laughs> when you're controlling these creatures, that is deliberate. But again, incredibly satisfying to pull off some of these attacks, even from the beginning, when you're talking about the low-level monsters like the Great Azuchi and the Azeros, just swiping with the Azeros with those massive claws that that thing has. Uh, or you're fighting with the Great Azuchi and you're throwing out that massive hook tail that it has and swinging around like it's some chain hook being able to land those hits, being able to be on equal footing essentially with the monsters that you're playing. If even for a short time is really, really cool. And uh, also a great way, just as a quick little aside, also a great way to get extra materials from those monsters because Wyvern writing knocks monster parts off. It will break little pieces of the monster off and you can collect those materials for your item crafting but once you've landed a couple hits with a monster you can do a mounted punisher a super move with that monster to do even more damage against the one you're fighting and again they're just so so cool some monsters even have specific battle animations they'll get into called turf wars so when you have specific monsters fighting each other they will not just attack each other but they will go into this entire like scripted sequence that sometimes literally takes the fight hundreds of feet into the air. These are incredibly cool to look at. And the one that I'm specifically talking about is between the Rathalos and the game's signature monster, the Lion Dragon Magnamalo. Uh, Seth, you and oh. I had a, a very hype moment with the Rathalos and the Magnamalo, didn't we? Oh, uh, it's it's like the the Magnamalo versus Rathalos turf war is one of the coolest things 
I, I've seen in a video game. And then like, there's another one between the Rajang and the Rathian, which is just, again, I mean, these are so cool. This is like, you're seeing you're literally in normal gameplay, just witnessing a Kaiju fight. <laughs> like, it is so awesome. And, and again, being able to participate in that with the wyvern writing mechanic, being able to have the practical application of dealing extra damage to the monster and also getting extra materials. It's a win, win, win. I mean, what a cool mechanic. Again, give that guy a promotion. And specifically when we were talking about the Rathalos and the Magnamalo, the Rathalos grabs onto the Magnamalo and they fly high up into the air, but they're still fighting. Yeah. They're still biting and clawing at each other. And Seth and I were just watching, just had our cameras toward this guy, just watching these two <laughs> fight at it. And I repositioned myself a little bit and then threw my camera back up into this guy just in time for both of them to come crash landing down right on top of me and almost killing me. That was hilarious. But then the Magnamalo wound up staggered himself. So I got to ride the game's signature monster and using the Magnamalo, we were actually able to kill the Rathalos. And that was incredibly satisfying. Oh, so good. I mean, like that sentence, what, what, that scenario that you just described should sell you on the game just right there. Honestly, like it's so so good. And that's not even the only hype moment that I had with a Magnamala when I was playing through one of the village quests. I was hunting two monsters. As a matter of fact, there are a couple missions where you will be hunting multiple monsters at once. And in addition to those two monsters I was hunting, a Magnamalo, the game's quote unquote final boss, happened to be lurking on the map as well, just running around. And just by happenstance, by luck, all three monsters just happen to be, they just happen to move over to the same area at the same time. And I, again, the Magnamalo got staggered and I wrote it and I was able to absolutely lay waste to both of these other monsters at the same time while riding the Magnamalo, even performing its mounted Punisher, lining, the, lining it up so that I actually hit both of them with its mounted Punisher at once. I felt like a true monster hunter that day, let me tell you. <laughs> and you can trigger the Wyvern riding by having monsters attack each other. You can trigger the Wyvern riding by performing really strong hits against monsters. However, there is a piece of endemic life called the Puppet Spider. If you're able to find one of those, you can also initiate a Wyvern riding section with one of those. And I do think this is a good time really quickly just to bring up the endemic life in the maps. Yeah, I, I brought it up a little bit when I was talking about the the wire bugs as a, as a generalization, but the endemic life essentially is a, you know, you're talking about like these, these kind of bugs that fly around and kind of even swim around. There are even fish that kind of swim around that can it, it essentially, again, acts as a something of a difficulty slider that you can engage with. You can get permanent buffs to things like your stamina consumption, your attack boost. You can even get these kind of more temporary upgrades to like your health and your attack. And it's, it's really nice to have that option and to be able to go and collect some endemic life and kind of further prepare for an intimidating fight. Yeah, there are a ton of collectibles on these maps, probably every couple of seconds. Genuinely, you probably can't run for a couple of seconds without running into a piece of endemic life, which will give you a buff, which will increase your attack or your defense or your stamina consumption, or give you a bump, a 
permanent bump for that mission to your life or your stamina or your attack or your defense. Or you can even run into a bunch of endemic life like the puppet spider, which you can use effectively as combat items. You have the puppet spider, like I mentioned. You also have other uh, endemic life, which you can set down to have various effects. There's a poison toad that you can set down, which will poison your opponent. Those, there's right. these trap bugs that you can set down that are basically caltrips that help out. Again, there's just a ton of different life forms and endemic life that serve a diff uh, that serve a bunch of different functions within the game. And even outside of the endemic life, there's a ton of gatherable items in this game. There's stuff all over the place. You have mining outcrops and herbs and all kinds of different items that you can gather from these maps to the point where you even have the option of doing what they call expedition tours of right. these missions, of these areas. Most of the monster missions, you'll have a 50-minute time limit on, which is a very liberal time limit. However, if you just want to go to one of these maps and pick up Endemic Life or pick up gatherable resources, then you're able to do that as well. But yeah, the, the different things that you can discover, the different resources you can gather, and the different endemic life that can help you in your Monster Hunter fights are peppered throughout all of these maps. And I very highly recommend, very highly recommend uh, taking advantage of those, maybe stopping off, especially when you get into the higher rank monster fights. I would definitely recommend stopping off and maybe even charting a path through some of these maps to really maximize your endemic life uh, gathering to really set you up for success against a lot of these monsters. It, it is really nice to be able to gather stuff for both preparing yourself for a fight, for crafting, for, you know, completing side quests. The game's got dozens of side quests uh, to, to kind of take on, uh, which I'm still working through. Yeah. But when you're talking about charting your way through a map, I, I think... I mean, how could we have this review without spending a little bit of time to talk about the Palamute? Yeah. The good boy, the <laughs> doggo that they have included in this game that is a total game changer for the movement of the game. The fact that you can mount up on your Palamute and just zoom around these maps and the fact that they made the really smart decision to let you do essentially anything that you can do on foot on the back of your Palamute was so smart and just, and makes the Palamute an absolute staple. Like whenever I go on a hunt, I've got to have my good boy with me. Now the addition of the Palamute was incredibly important for several reasons. Just like Seth talked about, in addition to the wire bug and all the incredible movement options, the wire bug gives players. Now the Palamute, the addition of this dog style companion, this mountable dog style companion in monster hunter rise also gives the players so many more options and so much more maneuverability and movement capabilities because the run speed of most of your characters is okay but these are fairly large maps so you really need a few tools at your disposal to get through them in a halfway decent time frame and the palamute is probably the best tool that you can use it triples i think your run speed i mean you get so much faster on the back of a palamute they are definitely good boys but even in addition to all the incredible movement capabilities the palamute brings with it 
it will, much like your Palicos, your cat-style companion, they also perform right. a support function in battle. The Palamutes are much more attack-oriented. The dogs are typically more attack-oriented support battle companions, whereas the Palicos, the feline companions, are much more support-oriented, curing and buffing and stuff like that. They're effectively the white mage of the party, whereas the Palamutes are more like the fighter of the party, I guess. But maybe even more so than just the movement options, that support role that we're talking about is really, really important because specifically from a single player aspect, the fact that they've added Palamutes into this game and you can go into single player missions with a Palico and a Palamutes or really right. any two buddies. If you want to go with two Palamutes or two Palicos, you can do that. But the addition of having an extra companion on the single player missions, just going from having a two character party to a three character party makes it actually really feel like a party. It makes it feel like a real group as opposed to just a character and its companion. And that opens up a ton more strategy options and makes the game far more interesting in my opinion. Now that's just from a single player aspect. When you're playing multiplayer, then you can take whichever partner you want. You only have one partner, but you can take either a Palamute or a Palico with you. And despite how great Palicos are with their support options, with their ability to heal and support the player, I mean, who doesn't have a Palamute online right now just because of the movement options and the attack options? Yeah, I mean, the, the Palamute's a bit of a game changer. And they they sort of, with Iceborne, the, uh, the big DLC expansion for World, they sort of had a little bit of, like, mounted stuff. It was not nearly this deep, though. It was, like, on rails, and you couldn't do some of the, the options that you had, like, on foot on the back of a mountable creature. With the Palamute, just like I said, you can carve monsters on the back of a Palamute. You can sharpen your weapon on the back of a Palamute. You can, you know, pop a potion. You can do really anything that you can do on foot on the back of a Palamute. And I just found that to be so smart. And um, it, it just really makes the Palamute feel like an extension and an improvement on your normal gameplay. Just like all of this stuff. It's just, this is such a deep game and there's so much going on. Like the Palicos and the Palamutes each have their own equipment loadouts and they all have like behaviors that you can set. I mean, this game is really as deep as you want it to be. And, and there's a lot to talk about there just with this aspect of the game. But the simple addition of a Palamute, again, was a total game changer. I still remember hearing you over the the headset the first time you saw me using my whetstone. You saw me sharpening my blade on the back of a Palamute. You're like, you can do that on the back of a Palamute? <laughs> yeah, it's awesome, man. It's so cool to be able to like when a monster runs away or retreats, to be able to chase it down on the back of your Palamute while sharpening your weapon. It's just oh, it's so nice versus like stopping and sharpening it. It's just adds to the flow of the game. This game has got such a good flow. It's just such an immediate improvement. But um, again, I, I could talk about these good boys and girls all day. However, I think another major thing that we need to talk about when it comes to the gameplay, speaking of new additions, 
is the new Rampage yeah. missions. Yeah, there's so much about the battles that we haven't even been able to get to from the item usage to the fact that you can break pieces off of monsters to the fact that they can run away and you'd have to reinitiate combat. There's so much to these fights. But yeah, we definitely need to talk about the new Rampage mode. I mean, we could legitimately probably spend three hours reviewing this game. There's just so much to cover. But uh, but yes, the new Rampage mode, which is kind of the marquee new mode of the game, is essentially a tower defense kind of mode. Again, I talked about this a little bit with the story setup, but the Rampage is when a horde of monsters comes bearing down to attack Kamura Village. And the Rampage missions, of which there are a handful of mandatory uh, Rampage missions throughout the course of both the Village and Hub quests, uh, is essentially a scenario where you have to set up defenses to stave off a bunch of large monsters that are attacking your village. And to be honest, like while I appreciate their inclusion, while I appreciate that they shake up the gameplay, the rampage missions is the one kind of major element of this game that kind of fell a little bit flat for me. It, it really, that's not really what I come to monster hunter for this kind of tower defense thing. I think it's fine, but for me personally, it's just not what I'm looking for. It, it it got to the point where I really kind of dreaded doing a new rampage mission towards the end. And yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm not really a tower defense guy at all. I can probably count on one hand, the number of tower defense games that I found any enjoyment out of, but I do right. appreciate Capcom's attempt to add some more variety to monster hunter because despite the fact that all of these different monsters are incredibly unique they have unique attack patterns and in many times completely unique strategies you need to employ in order to take them down the fact that you go from one hunt to the next hunt to the next hunt despite how dynamic they can be can i can see how they can feel start to feel a little repetitive i can't admittedly see sure. that so i know exactly why they put the rampage missions in here was to add a a dose of admittedly much needed variety into the monster hunter formula you experiment with stuff sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't i honestly think this was a case of i don't really think it just worked i think the way i think it worked about as well as a tower defense mode in monster hunter maybe could to their right. credit i did like a lot of what they did because essentially in this rampage mode, you have a a little bit of a setup. It's 3D, obviously. So you have a pretty clear path through the gate, through the area. And you essentially just set up armaments down the corridor, down the pathway to help defend against monsters. And you can set up armaments that are manned with villagers that are already there. You can set up armaments that are manually fired by yourself or one of your party members. You can set up armaments that are triggered by monsters going near them or stepping on them, stuff like bombs. And then as you go through a rampage mission, as you continue to defeat more monsters in that rampage mission, your armaments will level up in real time and you can add newer and stronger weapons. So on paper, I can certainly see why a lot of people thought this was a really good idea. And admittedly, a lot of people who are more inclined 
toward tower defense modes and tower defense style games may find a lot of enjoyment in the rampage mode. But for me, yeah, it was just a little bit too much because you have a dozen different monsters attacking you from a dozen different angles. And you're essentially just sitting there behind a weapon, holding the a button firing at them for an extended period of time. For the most part, uh, there is strategy involved, of course, when it comes to the placement of the armaments. There are a couple one-time use weapons, like what's it called, the Dragonator? Right. Yeah, you've got like the Dragonator. You've got these kind of like big, like last-ditch effort defenses that you can pop off. You can even summon like some of the more, like you can summon Elder Fugin. You can summon the uh, the Maidens and stuff to help in battle. And they do give you some interesting options. Like in terms of when you're on a mounted armament, you can do things like knock back, you know, gate crashing monsters and even stun, you know, certain monsters and stuff like that. So there is strategy involved there. And and there's even a moment that happens kind of periodically called the counter signal, which essentially boosts your attack to the point of, it, it actually is more viable for you to hop off of the armament and start attacking the monsters on foot in a more traditional monster hunter gameplay style, like actually just jumping off and whacking them with your sword or whatever. So, I mean, there, there is quite a bit of variety inside of the rampage and there is quite a bit of strategy inside of the rampage. And I appreciate what they were trying to do, but it's so overwhelming and, you know, and not for nothing. Another thing I wanted to point out, the only times I ever had this game, give me an issue from a technical perspective has always been in a rampage. I've always gotten lagged out or or frame drops or whatever in a rampage because there's just so much going on. So it's just one of those things where I appreciate what they were trying to do. I just don't think it quite stuck the landing. And I've got to agree with you on that. As great as this game is, as legitimately great as this game is, yeah, I probably won't be doing too many of the voluntary rampage missions in this game. Actually, I I don't know. Are there any? I really hope there's no crafting materials, any monster materials that are only available in the rampage missions. Are there? I can't remember. Yeah, there are certain um, elements that yeah that are tied to the rampage where you get these like rampage. They're called defender tickets, and you can use those for a. There's even a rampage tree on all the weapons. You can make like a rampage weapon. And, uh, and so there, there is that to consider there. I will say there are some other ways to earn, uh, defender tickets, which is really nice. I want to shout out just really, really quickly, the amiibo support in this game, because this game actually features like some of the best amiibo support I've seen in a Nintendo game. There are currently three amiibo available for monster hunter rise, the Magnamalo, the Palico and the Palamute amiibo. And when you scan them, you earn a piece of layered armor, basically a, a piece of armor that can overlay and, and be displayed instead of whatever armor you have on that is themed around the Magnamalo and scanning. These will unlock a piece of layered armor for both the player the Palico and or for each, the player, the Palico and the Palamute. And in addition to that, you can scan any amiibo up to three times per day and be entered into an amiibo lottery through the merchant. And get depending on your luck, you can actually earn some of the rampage materials through that lottery. So despite the fact that I've only done as many rampages as was required of me and no more and no less, 
I've still been able to get a fair amount of those defender tickets uh, just from Amiibo lottery. And it has admittedly become a bit of a ritual for me to go ahead and scan my three Amiibo every time I turn the game on. So shout out to the Amiibo support in this game. It's really good. Fair enough. I definitely need to get those Amiibos. That Magnamalo one specifically looks really, really good. The Amiibos just keep getting better. They really do. Magnamalo specifically is like, it's one of those, we did our top five Amiibo list way back when. If we were to redo that list, Magnamalo would probably be on mine today. It's it's <laughs> that good. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there's, man, there's so much to talk about in this game. Like I said, we, we could have easily spent you know, three, four hours, just like talking about every little individual aspect of this game. But my, my overall thoughts on it is just like, it's one of those games and we've used this term a few times before to talk about a few switch games, but it's evergreen for me. It's one of those games that's just going to live on my switch, especially as we're heading into DLC support and, and Capcom is going to continue to support this game. It's going to be the kind of thing that I just continue to play, you know, for, probably the next year or two years, you know, I, if they support this the way they supported world, I mean, this is going to be the kind of game that I, I just kind of stay on. Yes. I fully expect Capcom to be supporting this game for a while. They supported monster hunter world for quite some time. And we already do have confirmed content coming both in a couple weeks with the addition of, you know, the quote unquote end of the story mode, as well as a few new monsters, quote unquote, several new monsters. We've already seen the Camellios mm-hmm. and the Apex Rathalos. We already have confirmation of even more content coming in a few months, and I fully expect more to be following after that. And just in terms of being an evergreen game, uh, again, seeing the credits on this game is really only the start of the true Monster Hunter experience. Because once you get into the quote-unquote high rank of the game, Mm-hmm. That's where I think a lot of the that's where I think a lot of the hardcore a lot of people become hardcore fans of Monster Hunter is those high rank those four player you know down to the wire battles that you have against yes. these massive beasts. The single player missions are fun. There's a lot of things to love about the game, but uh, there's going to be so many different ways to put in so many different hours at this title for a long time to come. Now, as for my final thoughts on the game, Monster Hunter is not admittedly a super newcomer-friendly game just because of how much stuff there is in the game. Again, there was so much right. stuff that we've left out, and it's pretty evidenced by the fact that for the first couple hours you play Monster Hunter, you're basically going to be reading tutorials. There are so many different aspects of this game. The game needs you to know about so many different lists and abilities and little quirks and details in this game that you really should know about. Things that we haven't even alluded to in the almost hour and a half that we've been talking about this game already. But jump in, just accept that for the first couple hours, you're just going to be learning a lot of stuff. It's going to be a little bit of a slow process at the beginning, but once you really start to get into the battles after a couple hours, then you're just kind of off to the races at that point. And it's a ton of fun. You'll get completely addicted to this gameplay loop. You're going to have a ton of fun. The monsters are amazing. The equipment and the buddies and the everything that you have can be amazing. Speaking of the buddies, we didn't even talk about the different buddy aspects that they have outside of battle support. There are 
something, there's this thing called the Meow Scenaries, where you can have buddies that you're not currently using, performing tasks outside of battle and collecting stuff for you. You can be training buddies that you're not currently using. You can have an old army of buddies in the game. That was something we didn't even mention. There's just so much stuff to this game, so much to really sink your teeth into. I think the American voice work is a little bit cringy, and I'm not a big fan of the Rampage mode, but outside of that, I'm very impressed with everything I've seen in Monster Hunter Rise and all the stuff they've added specifically for Monster Hunter Rise with the addition of the Palamute, with the addition of the Wirebug. This was something we mentioned last week when we were talking briefly about the game, but a lot of these additions, a lot of these gameplay enhancements is probably going to make the older games a little difficult to go back to with as much, with as far as this one has come. So... I mean, it's fantastic. It's great. It may wind up being a contender for the Nintendo Switch Game of the Year for 2021. And it's just something that we are probably going to continue to put a couple hundred hours into as if we didn't need another game like that after Animal Crossing. Yeah. After Animal Crossing, we got Pokemon Snap coming out in just a couple weeks. I mean, we it's just an embarrassment of riches on Switch right now. And I think even among all of the amazing games that we already have on this system, Monster Hunter Rise stands out. And, you know, it's it's just going to be the kind of thing that I just continue to play as, as Capcom continues to support it. And I can't wait to see what's coming next with it. Uh, again, we, we've voiced our little minor issues, you know, with things like the Rampage not really landing for us, things like the English dub being kind of cringy, whatever. But, uh, but overall, such an impressive game, such an impressive package. And uh, I, I think that this is one of those games where, like, if you were only going to own a couple of Switch games, Monster Hunter Rise is one of the best bangs for your buck that you can find on the system. I mean, there are so many systems and mechanics and things that we can't even cover in the scope of a review. It, it, it's just so deep and so satisfying and so rewarding. And I can't wait to spend much, much more time with it. And if you have the game, maybe join us online because uh, I think I might need to help Seth grind out a few Zenogre battles. <laughs> yeah, I need to get that uh, Zenogre Jasper to make my lightning switch axe. And I'm not looking forward to that. I, I'm going to have to grind high rank Zenogre probably a million times to get that thing. But <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Yeah, but if you do have the game, let us know what you think about Monster Hunter Rise. Or if you don't, let us know if you plan on getting monster hunter rise reach out to us on facebook at all in podcast reach out to us on twitter at all in podcast and thank you so much for hanging out with us each and every saturday each and every weekend making us part of your weekly rotation and joining us wherever you get your podcasts from whether you're listening to us on google play spotify itunes or soundcloud again we appreciate each and every one of our listeners namaste And I'm actually kind of glad we're done with the episode now because there's been another byproduct of the Minute Machines time travel. Seth, I have to warn you about Tuesday. Tuesday? I mean, that's the 15th anniversary of Okami. I know we're going to be doing a retrospective on that next week, but I mean, what's the big deal about Tuesday? No, 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 no. Seth, we have to save the world. Guys, I have been the redheaded stepchild of the Order of No Quarter, Uh. Eric Knight. And I've been Zenogre Slayer Seth and apparently new savior of the world. Uh, We'll catch you guys next week. Bye.
away. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Don't do that.